Hey, Pete. Hey, Aaron. Get ready to start Trek. Every time. I was trying to think of something funny. Like, mm. I was I was hiding behind, say, a rock face, like, observing you. Um, <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> you, you knew I was there. I, you know what? You know, now, I was there the whole time. That informed your character. It's very funny. Thanks. I I try to like I try to really get into my characters, and I think one of the problems with getting into a character where they're hiding from the other character is that there's not a lot of opportunity to say anything to really draw distinction Man, to your character. This rock uh, offers a lot of concealment. I bet yeah. Pete can't even see me from here. Can he even see me? <laughs> well, I'm just standing here and I can't even see Aaron. Uh, oh, no. The hologram <laughs> broke. No. This is you got to start. Wor- you got to start worshiping. You got to start worshiping me. Uh, it is. It's like every uh, audiobook I download off of Audible that was people acting out the book. Instead, I'm like, oh no, it's terrible. <laughs> what? It, it looked good on paper, but audio dramas are tough. Um, yeah, where we left? Oh no, we're fuck. Cut that. We're not. We left to watch. What is this? Uh, this is Star Trek, a spinoff. Can you podcast. hit that a second T a little bit? Of uh, we start track. Thank you. A uh, spinoff podcast that we love to watch, where the hosts of that show and, ironically, this show, Aaron Armstrong and Pete Moran, uh, discuss the Star Trek movies and and serve as an introduction to Peter about Star Trek as a whole. We uh, Peter and I had done we love to watch for about four years at the time, and through a conversation, discovered that he had never seen any Star Trek movies except for the first two Abrams ones. So that led to us, uh, I've been a lifelong fan of Star Trek, especially the original series movies. Uh, like, they are comfort food to me. I could sit and watch all six of them at any given time. Uh, love uh, Next Generation. I love Deep Space Nine. I have mixed feelings on everything else. Uh and uh, it just made sense to like, hey, when we get time as a spinoff show, let's let's get Peter into Star Trek. And uh, so we're, we're, we're still doing that. This is our 11th or 12th episode because we've done a few intro episodes to both Next Generation as a whole, uh, as well as the original series at first. And this is the point in the movies that I've been dreading since we started doing the show. Which is, you know, Pete, I don't think you were skeptical about Star Trek, but I think Star Trek, if you approach it for the first time, is something that you can't help but be skeptical about. Just in the sense that there's so much. And, the and you know, the fans are, like, known as the first weirdo obsessive fans that there ever was for, for uh, pop culture media. And so it's a big thing to, to get into and... Uh, you know, the stuff that you had seen, one is a pretty good movie and one is a terrible movie. Like most Star Trek fans would tell you, yes, yeah, some of it's not really all that good just because there's so much. So I think it's natural to approach it with skepticism. And you're starting that in, from that series perspective with a movie that, um, uh, you know, people are people definitely have mixed feelings about uh, overall, even though I'm glad that you loved it. But once you get going, I had a lot of confidence that we were going to get rolling. Star Trek Two is a is one of the best science fiction movies of all time. Star Trek Three's got some really great moments. Star Trek Four is you know a personal favorite of mine, as is Star Trek Six. I thought even with the speed bump of Star Trek Five, there's some funny moments 
Kirk yells at God, like whatever. It's you know, it's still this I, like I, I liked that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's it's not too bad. It's not as good as the other ones, but um, it just felt like a overlong episode that had some good ideas. He climbs fucking El Cap, man. <laughs> yeah, you gotta see that. You gotta uh, see that. Um, and so like. And when we got into Star Trek: The Next Generation, I was as as uh, as obvious by how many episodes you you have watched compared to the original series, because the show really is the high point of Next Generation, where the movies are the high point of the original series. Um, you know, I I knew the show you were gonna like. I just couldn't imagine you not liking the show, which you of the episodes we've watched, I know you really liked. Uh, and we have some of the best episodes to come in some other episodes that we will put together after we get through the next two movies. Uh, I love Star Trek Generations. I think you were like, this is fine. Um, Star Trek First Contact, which we did last episode. You were like, yeah, this is half a good movie and half not so good of a movie, which I which I agree with. But this is really where I was like, this is going to feel not so good. And we're going to have to get through this and then... Uh, and then the next movie, which people like worse than this one, Peter, um, to kind of get through. So, yeah, today we're doing Star Trek Insurrection, the ninth Star Trek movie, the one that really kind of lost the thread. I'm look- I'm excited to get through uh, kind of how this movie was made, which just is seemingly a series of incomprehensible decisions that everyone just shrugged at and eventually made a movie out of. Uh, and then uh, one of the, one of the best early episodes of, of – uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, which comes early in its third season, when the third season is, is commonly known as the one that finally gets good all the way around. But this was one of the first episodes of that season that people went, oh, interesting. Like, this is a this is a good episode. It's tackling some kind of a big Star Trek theme in the observance-only prime directive stuff and doing it in a very interesting way that also does a very Star Trek thing, which is like, hey, as long as we're here... Uh, God's not real, uh, <laughs> which is which is a lot of fun. Um, and that is the the third season episode. Who watches the Watchers? And the reason these are paired is a Peter probably was a super obvious one. Uh, they are basically taking the same premise and doing separate things with them. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the nice thing about Who Watches the Watchers is that it's uh, like forty two minutes. <laughs> Um, yeah. And Star Trek Insurrection does it genuinely feels like an episode of the show uh, stretched out, which uh, I think a common complaint that I've heard at least or like you know have had filtered through you. I don't know the difference really at this point. Um, <laughs> is that I am the most common can... Star Trek resource that you've talked to in your <laughs> exactly. Lifetime. Is that sometimes there's an issue of scale um, that these movies can feel too small or. Um, that they can just feel like an episode blown up. And I actually grew to be very comfortable with that at times. Like, I I grew actually to laud when the movie wasn't just, oh, there's another doomsday device we got to put down. Like, that's something I get in enough movies. And the idea of just, like, saving one culture is, like, I think the perfect scale for a Star Trek movie like this, right? The the issue is (laughs) they do this shit on the show all the time and better like i don't think this movie is an issue of scale even though at times it feels like so like they just saved the universe from the borg threat and then the next time they're like we just saved 
50 people? Well, that's that's been my joke, I think. 50 people from getting uh, deported. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's been my joke from the beginning, that, like, the scale here, like, I understand that you can't always do doomsday machines, right? But the scale in Star Trek Generations is, like, uh, the whole Enterprise, the cast and crew, uh, or not the crew, I guess. Yeah, the... I mean, the crew of the Enterprise and the <laughs> cast, who also plays the crew of the Enterprise. Um, I don't know what you're talking got, about, Aaron. This is a documentary. Yeah, no, the, but they were, you know, they were at risk. And then there's also the planet, like Viridian 5 or whatever it was. It's, it's definitely Viridian. I just don't remember which number. Uh, that would have blown up and cost the life of 4 billion people. Like, those are stakes. Okay. What's bigger stakes? Star Trek First Contact. All of humanity gets wiped out, like, and taken over by the Borg. Big stakes! And then this one's like, 200 people have to move. (laughs) Um, People that aren't even native to this planet. Well, that's what's really interesting, and I'm, I'm excited to get into it. I think one of the big problems with this movie, ethically, is that, yes, you do have a villain... But, you know, Patrick Stewart actually talked about who was not a fan of this movie every step of the way, which I'm excited to kind of share some of that stuff with you, Peter, said that unlike his character, he would be absolutely on the other side of this argument, which is like cure all diseases or force 200 people to move. And I actually think that like this uh, Star Trek Insurrection is watching it uh, for the first time. Since maybe high school or college, I I did see it in theaters and walked away like, huh, okay, I guess. <laughs> did I like that? It's a Star Trek movie. I know I'm supposed to like it, but why? It's just perplexing decisions all the way around. And then like seeing it in college when I bought it on DVD and going, oh no, I don't like this. But this one feels in in which is mo- most most star trek as a whole is like progressive or liberal like you know lowercase l right like it is that idea of now even though because a lot of times star trek is made by people who are imperfect and not woke and uh, maybe not be progressive it looking back on it you know you see, like, in some of the more embarrassing examples, which we'll definitely have some time for in future episodes, like, you have, look at this, a planet where women rule. And you're like, oh, how progressive. Like, I'm sure the writers were like, this is a Star Trek thing. Women run planets. What if we have everyone be an asshole about it? It's like, <laughs> uh, oh, because, you know, some writer in 1987, some dude wrote it. And so, like, it takes a concept that theoretically is progressive, but then kind of has its 1987 garbage uh, all over. Um, this is the Star Trek movie that really feels uh, conservative. Like, for me, like, it feels like a movie about, like, even if the government can do good. Uh, that like individual rights is more important than the greater good. It is essentially a movie, Peter, about eminent domain. <laughs> yeah, it is, and it feels like fanfic in that yeah. regard. Where like you're, you're, what you're talking about is true, but like the fact that Star Trek was made in this TV environment where yet you, you brought on writers, writers left, you couldn't always. You couldn't always, like, spot check every single script and make sure that it fit the grander ethos, right? Yeah. Um, and and um, what was easier to do is, like, no, that race is... Uh, that race doesn't fit the mythos. Uh, yeah. You can't really, like, the ethics, it's, like, harder to police in an individual script when you've got, like, you've got a TV show to make, man. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, but the, with with this, it, it feels like Star Trek, a fan script where they're like, where someone's like, ah, I understand the prime directive. Um, and then they start writing and then inevitably when you start writing you reveal a bit about yourself right like that's why a lot of action movies end up being very conservative because people are like well what am i what would i do if my my wife was killed i'd probably have to take the law into my own hands you're like how do i get to the point of violent conflict well and then you people start just reveal they start showing their ass a little bit right um and like i love a lot of action movies but like that is that's true like liberal screenwriters will write an action movie that's like you knew the you knew like the crime wave stuff was like a myth right yeah uh, exactly. And, like, even though the writers on this, like, it's not like Michael Piller is a great writer for a lot of different Star Trek series. Like, the stories by um, stories by Michael Piller and then Rick Berman, who is, like, the, the Star Trek ruiner, which we'll talk about uh, more. So, like, it, it does feel like, theoretically, you're not you're not hiring outside, which we'll talk about next uh, next movie, to do a Star Trek thing and the person just doesn't get it. Theoretically, these are people that should get it and have shown that they get it um, to some extent. And this, like, when it's boiled down to, like, I don't think they I, – I think you're right. I think it's showing your own ass, like, because the – There's actually a movie which I didn't show you because it's actually the end of another arc uh, called Journey's End in the seventh season where it's – it basically tackles the the concept of relocation like – but except it's in like indigenous American people that eventually because the US government was forcing them to take – to take all their their, um, – you know, kept – kept uh taking back reservation land and ancestral land eventually these indigenous like this tribe decided to go to the stars to find a new home right and so they uh they're on this planet and um and uh picard is is tasked with basically removing them not because of like anything like that goes on in this movie which again uh cure for old age and immortality and all sickness it is just that they have a new treaty with the Cardassians or some race, and unfortunately, this planet isn't Federation space anymore. So if they don't come and move the um, move the, the the settlers out, the 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 people off this planet, um, the Cardassians are going to go and kill them all. Um, and so you end up like having like I forget exactly how that episode resolves itself. It's been a little bit since I've seen it, but you have a premise with that tackles the actual issues that I think they're trying to get to with a lower stakes than a, a cure for death, <laughs> and also like that actually taps into that concept of when relocating people is immoral and does like you know where this is just some other white people that took over a planet and then oh just p.s this isn't your planet and also uh we're gonna need to move you somewhere else so that everyone else can like it's fucking like an Anne Rand situation like they're yeah. hoarding they're hoarding a mortal life and a cure for illness uh that they didn't earn or build or anything like that and the government comes in and goes yeah like Hey, you're going to get to keep a mortal life, but that would be good for more than you. And they're like, "Mm, don't think so. We really like our houses. Like, I don't I think that's ultimately such a big problem with this movie is that you had the two concepts of like um, 
uh, 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 watching over without intervention and the idea of resettling as uh, by way of for for by way of like federation decree and you had both of those concepts tackled way better in star trek and then you you're left with this fucking mishmash of uh things and when when you're not on starfleet side or the federation side or picard's side in a movie and you're supposed to be uh that's a huge problem for your star trek movie like there's not a star wars movie yet really where you're like I this I I like what this Darth Vader's putting down, <laughs> you know, and that's and that's a problem. And, and again, a problem that Patrick Stewart himself said that part of the reason that he was against this movie is that he was not on Picard's side at all. They seem and, to like they seem to soften the 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 argument for this race, um, the the Baku. Um, they seem to soften their the argument for their you know their 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 staying here um, pretty consistently. Yeah. Like, um, and, and and the fact, I mean, like I not even lie. not even F. Murray Abraham is like really on board with killing them. Like that's why they build it. Like we'll we'll talk about it when we get to the plot. But like even the threat of death comes like really late in the end, and everyone's kind of like upset with. And at that point, it's because the Federation has re- has like re- repeatedly broken a deal with him right they made a deal well they're just like hey we're not the federation is saying we're not willing to kill people over this and they're not leaving so and yeah and uh what's his name uh f murray uh, abraham yeah uh uh rufo they never say his name really i'm gonna i'm gonna say f murray abraham (laughs) yeah f murray abraham he's like Okay, well, I will kill two hundred people when he shows up. When he shows up, and he's the like facelift freak, and he looks like some combination of either the mom from Brazil or um, the the surgery freaks from Escape from L.A. I was like, huh? You wonder if that guy's the villain? Which is not something that should be in Star Trek. That's something for Star Wars to do. That's something for. A space, op- a space opera or, like, a Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever that, like, ugly character equals villain um, should not be how you construct your races. Like, it's actually far more Star trek to be like, this guy is a fucking freak. And then you start talking to him and you're like, oh, he's... He's just, you know, he, he's, he's coming at this different. from a different history. Picard is just wandering into this conflict. Instead, it's like Picard wanders into this conflict, immediately identifies the asshole. Oh, the asshole is the terrifying looking facelift guy. Oh, these attractive white people are good. Oh, these attractive. I okay. quit Starfleet. If you're going to make conf- these people move, I'm <laughs> quitting Starfleet. It's um, actually fairly conflicting for me because uh, I think plastic surgery is just fine if people want to change their their, yeah. their appearance, like whatever. Like, I feel like that's kind of like a it's a thing that like the culture has evolved on. Like, you know, um, I don't think I don't think people should be pressured to uh, uphold this idea of youth forever. But if somebody wants to do routine adjustments or whatever to make themselves feel beautiful, like who gives a shit? It's your body. Get a tattoo. Get a piercing. Who gives a shit? Um, the problem with the Beku village, and I really hope I don't offend anyone with this. This is probably my most controversial opinion I've ever <laughs> spoken on a show. Is that um, the only thing I hate more than um, terrifying uh, murderous psychopaths uh, is uh, Renfair people. And the Baku are basically just Rennies. 
Yeah, they've renounced technology. Everything, like everything about the, them, makes them unsympathetic. Um, <laughs> Rennies uh, are my last. The Rennies and uh, and like an, anime incels are like my last nerd group that I will. Yeah. I, I am allowed to and I, continue to make fun of. I agree with your first point. Justice for Bruce Campbell's character in Escape from L.A. Like he was fine. <laughs> he was. He look. He lives in a, in a prison. On an, on the island of Los Angeles, like he is trying to live for him, and I think, um, yeah, I I think that's the same thing with Sorna or whatever his name is here, um, but I I don't quite know. Like when when the admiral at the end uses his plastic surgery machine, he he his face gets stretched to death. So I I'm unclear. <laughs> But also, apparently, this surgery has also prolonged their life for uh, centuries. So I I don't quite know what's going on. It just makes them um, aesthetically unappealing, right? So I think that device at the end kills him because he's not a Beku or he hasn't built up the tolerance to it. I don't know. I don't know. But look, it's it's clearly it's more of the like ammo for like the the, these. the Baku are now whatever this new race is. Um, that's something we should get right, right? Uh, whatever, we'll, we'll talk about that later. The Sorna and the Baku. Yeah, there we go. Um, but yeah, the, like the, I think the the idea there is that these uh, these Sorna are um, malicious space freaks. <laughs> like it's less that that device is deadly and more that like uh, these are such these are such space freaks they can handle it. Well, and they also are like, oh, you didn't think. The fact that he looks like a bad guy is preening like Murray Abraham and um, it does plastic surgery is bad. We're going to drop some lines early on. They're selling drugs. <laughs> oh. Murray Abraham looks at the scheme and he says, I think there's a lot of money in this. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's uh, Heisenberg with three apostrophes in the middle of his name. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we're going to get more into that. I'm actually excited. Like, this is one that I think we're going to have some meaty stuff to chew on when it comes to uh, me uh, letting you know how the fuck this movie was made. Because it is just a clusterfuck. And some hilarious choices, Peter. Like, fucking, you are going to laugh so hard. Like, uh, you probably were also like how they literally yada yada over Worf being there. Like, <laughs> they ask why he's there and, they, and then they Robert Altman him. Where, like, he becomes background conversation to a different one. Why well, here? Uh, yeah, never mind. Doesn't they matter. didn't even blow up his ship like they did in the last time. Uh, they didn't blow up his ship, very importantly, in the first one. But it did was disabled because that ship needed to go back to right. Space Nine. They have flips. blew it up. I'll compromise so, with you. <laughs> It was it was broken. They broke his ship. Uh, but we're, let's before we do all that, let's let's circle back to I think a good incarnation of of some of the themes here, which is who watched the Watcher, which is again um, a third season episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, so you know, Peter, we've talked about before as a refresh. Like, there's some good episodes in season one and two. Where it becomes less campy and for the most part consistently like good is uh, is season. Is season three, and this is one of I think the f- like first four or five episodes of season three. So this is really where like they're tackling more interesting themes. They're not just doing Alien of the Week. The themes that they were they're tackling are still sometimes like 
a little campy in the limits of budget and costuming and guest stars and locations and all that kind of stuff, but not campy in like, we're just going to have a goofy alien and then everyone's going to not know what to do with the goofy alien. Like they, they're, they're coming to more grounded themes. They're, they're thinking of more Star Trek ideology. And this is a perfect setup for that. It's the idea that, uh, you know, the prime directive, which actually hasn't come up much in the stuff that, um, that you've seen, I don't think, Peter. And in in the original series, it wouldn't matter because the prime directive is that is the is the number one directive, top top directive, top one directive of the Federation, which is non interference. Which is basically if a species is not ready for introduction to warp drive and a certain level of science and stuff like that, that uh, it is against the Federation's rules to interfere. So that means in any capacity, uh, if they have good resources, if they have X or Y, that uh, and then also that they are not allowed to, uh, the Prime Directive also like has a subset that they're not allowed to get into uh, involved with an internal matters of a species. So if the, so, one thing that did come up in the whole Klingon Civil War arc, which you saw, where even though they were allies with Gowron, when the Dura sisters were like, "Well, we're actually think that we own the throne," the Federation had to uh, basically stop supporting either until a new ruler of the Klingon Empire was crowned, because uh, they can't be, you know. They, they can't be seen as choosing sides in, in an internal Klingon manner or something like that. So that comes into play more in Star Trek Insurrection, where you actually find out the two species are the same. And, and that's where a prime directive violation becomes when them knowing about uh, future shit didn't. But uh, in, in, in this one, so the th- other reason why you probably didn't hear much about it is that most of Star Trek, the original series, not all, but most, is people like Spock saying that what Kirk's about to do violates the prime directive and Kirk going, fuck you, I do what I want. Cause I was going to ask, Kirk. do they ever follow the prime directive? It feels like there'd be no episode like, well, we shouldn't get involved. Well, well so, anyways, roll, roll, roll credits at five minutes. <laughs> so it's it's the it's the again the prime directive isn't like we shouldn't talk to new planets or do discovery. It's that it's it's what they want to avoid what happens here. Like we can't go down to seventeenth or sixteenth century, um, you know, America and be like we got laser guns. <laughs> like it's going to change the evolution of their society. They're not ready to accept that. In a lot of different ways. It's also why in the last movie that we saw, First Contact, Peter, the reason why the Vulcans, who are part of the Federation, uh, it's it's important to remember, even though humans are a big part of the Federation, they did not found the Federation. Uh, They are a part of the Federation. And so um, I don't know exactly when everything was founded and then Starfleet's. Oh, the the Nerdlinger race uh, from. uh, Dork on five formed yeah. it, but yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm just gonna. Back Ooh, what's up? Mess with these cultures. Uh, but the reason why the Vulcans landed in Matt Zephyr and Cochrane. I know. I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, the fact <laughs> that they met Zephyr and Cochrane is because they detected a warp signature, which basically meant that like this culture is ready to get introduced to the fact that they are not alone in the universe and how we can help, you know, how we can help this, this culture, because at that point you're not introducing new technology. Uh, and that actually goes for everything, right? Like even if they're a part of the Federation, the Federation's like, Hey, if this culture hasn't like essentially, um, invented replicators or something like that, like we can't just give them that technology. Like once they get there themselves, we can, 
do that. And um, the 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 ask that Star Trek, for the most part, asks of you is that most of the cultures and aliens and people that you've seen have already gotten there um, themselves, and so and there's so there's essentially hundreds upon hundreds of races that have basically came to uh, the same technology, which I guess even historically isn't all that like potentially well off like how many how many countries were close to uh bringing the atom bomb um you like they basically invented the atom bomb on their own or other stuff like that so um because as a technology gets to a certain point like there's certain things that are inevitable and it's and that's i think what star trek is saying on a global level now the whole thing with kirk is that people did bring up the prime directive and he was always like hey if someone's lives on the line if this would be good for us i throw the prime directive away and one thing that the 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 makers of star trek the next generation wanted to do is actually bring back the prime directive as something that mattered to Starfleet and the Federation and captains of ship like it is it is the most important directive because it you know it's it's what the whole Federation mission is is built on so yeah Kirk was a little bit of a renegade and stuff like that but that's actually not normal so Picard constantly invokes the prime directive in these episodes as like um usually sometimes like a sticking point or a reason that they can't interfere with something. So there's like a whole subgenre of Star Trek Next Generation episodes where like, you know, Beverly or Riker or Geordi feels passionate about helping something because if we don't help, that asteroid's going to, you know, blow up the planet and Picard, you know, looking like we can't interfere and that being a conflict. And then sometimes dealing with the consequences of, of not being able to interfere and other times trying to figure out a way to um, save lives or do something good that that uh follows the letter of the law if not if not the spirit so picard really is like a prime directive stickler and this is an episode where um where that really comes to the forefront because since the federation doesn't interfere but they do observe culturally and anthropologically um that you find out there's these little like um that are disguised holographically like rock faces where they have like observation pods and they observe observe the species and what happens here is that an observation pod gets damaged um and the the species uh in who watches the watchers sees it sees like uh weird computer workings into the rock face and um and uh someone uh someone that who doesn't belong there and they kid they kind of kidnap him they attack them and through that process of like climbing up and seeing they get one of them played by ray wise gets shocked and by the time uh the enterprise gets there they're like oh beverly is usually as a doctor the person who uh sometimes uh, flouts that rule because she she her prime directive is different right her prime directive is yeah so she um she's like well we have to save his lives we'll try to do this short-term memory procedure uh that happened in in season two where we kind of erase the memory it doesn't work on this species he comes back and you find out that even though this society is not technologically advanced they have moved beyond uh what they call superstitious thinking so when when they uh, recognize when uh ray wise's character recognizes being on the ship 
and and hearing about Picard, he thinks that like these are the old gods, like the Greek type gods that we had heard of before, and he starts kind of uh, proselytizing. Meanwhile, Riker and Troy to try to save still the missing scientist who's hidden in the caves in the world after getting injured, they get like m- uh, mildly surgically altered and wear disguises to go down and infiltrate without again cause making matters worse. Um, but meanwhile, they they do find the Starfleet person before Riker and Troy can find them and that kind of proves to everyone that oh shit gods are real and clearly if Picard wanted this guy that I heard him talk about it's probably for like evil old school god purposes right for like smiting and stuff like that and so they hold him captive waiting for Picard to come back and get him meanwhile Riker escapes with that guy but Troy gets captured and they realize that Troy is in disguise and knows the Picard and so like it you know it it's almost like those what are they, the shipping cults right like all of a sudden they decide that like maybe Troy should be burned and killed and Picard the only way that he can figure out how to fix the problem that he had is that like I'd rather have them know that technology can get better them to make them think to i'd rather like knowing that we're fucked and we already broke everything the best way to set things right is to know that they can go forward uh from a technological standpoint as 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 opposed to sending them backwards from a superstitious standpoint so he goes down to the planet says he's just human after he shows one of the other uh one of the other people like he beams him up to the enterprise shows him everything and kind of walks him through like yes this seems magical but if you had went back in time and showed people your buildings and your and your bow and arrows like in your own culture wouldn't they think that was magical and have a lot of questions too with this ship is our bow and arrow we've done all the same things picard gets shot with a bow and arrow to kind of prove that he's not immortal uh Beverly's able to save save his life and they kind of have at the end a little bit of a so you know hey now that you know this at least use it to try to better your society like we fucked up you found out but you can achieve great things and hopefully in a you know a few hundred years we'll come back and we'll be we'll be allies yeah that's a that's a good recap because it is essentially a straight it is a straight up Star Trek story right like yeah here here is my ideal oh shit i can't follow my ideal exactly to the law how do i morally navigate how do i morally thread this needle right like that's a classic star trek episode whereas like i don't think though first contact was a much better movie um you know sorry first contract was a a a better um star trek story you know for going you know apples to i don't know peaches i don't know what you're comparing here (laughs) um but uh first contact isn't a very good star trek story because it's largely just a big adventure movie like it doesn't really it doesn't really wrangle morally with anything it's just kind of like a fun anti-borg movie um who watches the watchers is ultimately like it's just a solid star trek episode it's not like it's not gonna um it's it's not like delving into new ground but like ultimately like we kind of come here to see the crew get morally tested and have to navigate their best way out of it and at the end of the day go i think we did okay maybe i don't we did as best as we could i'll probably you know live to regret that in 10 years and then sometimes they do live to regret it yeah i mean that is the great thing about star trek sometimes uh i i there's definitely an episode uh, and they pushed for more. We're like, um, 
that like I remember we I think we talked about this on uh, on on one of the Star Trek episodes that the writers that Rick Berman was very much against using like the Star Trek canon in the Next Generation or maybe it was Roddenberry who was the one who was really like no. I got cut out of the movies. It was Roddenberry because he was like, I got cut out of the movies. This is my own thing. We're going to use as little as possible from this giant thing that we're making a next generation of. And so the writers of Next Generation wanted to do an episode where um, they go back to one of the, the the TOS worlds, the original series worlds, where they you know met the Star Trek and realized how fucked up that made the world. And I think they eventually do that in either Deep Space Nine or Voyager. Um and, and yeah, like that – and you kind of see like, hey, here's why there's a prime directive because in the same way that like – I don't know. I, you know, I don't think UFOs are really visiting this planet. If UFOs are and that's the reason that we've had a culture around uh, UFO sightings and abduction stuff, uh, they really fucked up our culture. Like if that's just not a normal mass hysteria conspiratorial thinking and like the reason that people – uh, literally millions of people in this world have devoted their lives to proving that alien abductions are real is because they're getting abducted. I would say that's an impact in the world that is negative that they have caused. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and so, and uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I think I, I think that story makes sense. And I do like the way that they – like, this is such a good, like, just classic, like, sure, the sets are bad. The world is, like, one village that they go into and stuff like that. Again, but, Ren Faire shit. Like, the yeah. costumes all look like they were straight up ripped out of an MST3K, um, you know, yeah. barbarian movie. Yeah, and some of that gets a little better as we go on, and some of them just with the TV production costs and stuff like stays the same. But as you go on, but again, it's why Star Trek, even at a you know limited budget for a TV show, especially um, you know a syndicated TV show, works so well is that like the conflict between Beverly and Picard, who are fa- who have two different directives, you know. Picard is there as the captain of the ship to uphold the prime directive. That's Federation's prime directive. Well, uh, you know, Beverly Crusher has a directive that supersedes all other directives, which is do no harm, you know, Hippocratic oath, save lives. That's a conflict in this situation. And it's really fun to see those two characters like have to. They're, they're, in a way, they both have the moral high ground, which is always a fun Star Trek you know, conundrum or catch 22, like Picard is right that more interference when we know the effects of interference is bad. And Beverly's right that like, well, we've already interfered. So letting someone die at this point, isn't that an element of interference that we've caused? And like, there's not always a clear cut answer. Like obviously Picard ends up having to go with Beverly's plan and then Troy almost gets killed and then has to take even bigger steps to try to mitigate the damage. And, um, you know, that's just like, again, even the violence or the action in here is predicated not from a place of harm or that there's a bad guy, right? It's from a place of everyone trying to do the right thing. Even Ray Wise's character, who's it's so fun to see Ray rise. This is like just before Twin Peaks, too. Um, you know, he he like a lot of those uh, you know shipping or cargo cults. Sorry, not shipping cults. Although shipping is very important in the cargo business, so I feel like that's also <laughs> equally accurate. Um, uh, you know that idea of I, you do the cargo sit on it. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get it somewhere. It, it doesn't become cargo until you ship it. I think we can all agree, right? 
Absolutely. It would just be a box. And yeah, at that point, it's just a, a package. It's right? just a thing. Yeah, I'm gonna. I made thing. I made thing, and I put thing down. <laughs> yeah, I put thing down. Once you once you ship it, because cargo. it's cargo, baby. Um. <laughs> That's why when you're sitting in the store and you look at those those uh, shorts with the pockets on it, you go, "Huh, I like those shorts with the pockets on it." As soon as you put them on and walk out of the store, you walk out of that Old Navy. They are cargo shorts. Once you start putting your like once your wallet, your chain wallet, your decoy wallet cuz you think you live in a bad neighborhood, uh, <laughs> your keys and your, your flip phone, your flip phone, all those go into it. Then Pause. you got cargo baby. But before that they're just pockets and shorts. Yeah. Um <laughs> but like okay, that but idea like, of so if somebody calls cargo pants when they're sitting on a shelf but unfilled Cargo pants. Yeah, you call them pocket like, pants. They're, right? they're pocket pants. Pa- yeah. To be, be baffling. I would like one pair of pocket pants, please. And then, like, as you go home, you're like, I can put all of my packages in here. Oh, wink, wink. you got cargo shorts. No, they're cargo shorts. Ah. Ah. Um, ah, they got but, you. But, like, Ray Wise is like, you, you, you recognize that, like, he is not only, like, working with very limited information. He is working with extremely, like, world-changing, scary information that, like, is true. Like, he saw himself on a – in the sick bay of the Enterprise, which might as well have been the Temple of the Gods. Uh, he, like, you know, he was dead and now is back alive. He mysteriously appeared back into the – like, he heard some conversation that didn't make a lot of sense to him. Like, he is – doing these things from a place of holy shit gods are real <laughs> I, I need to a make up for not believing in gods my entire life all these stories that we dismissed as superstition um but also <laughs> uh, i need to figure out how to give this picard what he wants both in the idea of like uh, you know, uh, as, as apologia, but also just from a place of, of fear. And so, like, I, I like that even though he is the, you know, the prime antagonist to, like, people moving on and everyone getting away scot-free, you know, it's it's coming from an – even from him an understandable place. And that's – and, like, once – again, this is why, like, people like Star Trek is because he can be talked with reason – and not like in a fucking like facts don't care about your feelings Ben Shapiro way but like in an empathetic way like I don't hate you because you're wrong here I want to show you how you're wrong and I'm willing to hurt myself to let you know like that I don't want you to hurt other people and it works like at least you know for the for the time we see like you know they this culture leaves feeling more optimistic about a future they can have as opposed to leaving regressing into uh i don't know let's burn tony at the stake to make god happy (laughs) And, and and yeah that's a good point like um i also like the idea of ray wise uh killing a foreigner who's um doing a um vague stereotype of his people um and i had this thought um yeah we don't talk about that when they get surgically altered to look like other civilizations but like i I love the idea of ray wise being like oh no like we're not burning her at the stake for being a heretic like 
That shit's racist as fuck. <laughs> I just love the idea of a bunch of people burning Al Jolson to try and end the Great Depression. I, I mean, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> like, What's the worst that could happen? I get it's a counterfactual to like posit what could have happened, but I don't think it would have been worse. <laughs> Uh, I mean, but yeah. it got, I mean, I, I imagine the Enterprise crew would probably uh, leave, and then that storm would eventually end, and then everything would have been fine. Yeah, like, I love the idea that they have, like, a racist term for that on these planets. Like, are you wearing pointy ears? <laughs> it is very elfish. Like, it's, it's everyone's, very, got, like, everyone's got pointy ears. That's, like, got, that's a budgetary thing. Yeah, it's, I, I, uh, I was going to say, it's, if you look at, like, even Buffy... Um, in that same era, they're like, <laughs> all right, we got a weird ears. gremlin guy. What are we going to do? Well, we have green face paint and we've got pointy ears left over from the other goblin guy. What Did I? you know, I don't know if we ever talked about this. Did you know that when, uh, so there's, there's an original pilot of Star Trek that the network said, no, here's all the things that don't work in it. And one of it, one of the things was that, uh, they had Spock on it and, um, it was, uh, the pointy ears were too scary. For television audiences. <laughs> um, and they took all the notes like, oh, you're right. A first officer being a woman, a little crazy. And they got rid of that stuff. Um, but the, the one thing that Roddenberry was like, no, we need to show that this is an alien. We need the, an alien to be part of the crew. And like when they reshot the second pilot, um, he kept the, the pointy ears. And, but he made eyebrows less severe. Like if we ever watched the original pilot, like his eyebrows like basically are like – when he used to draw angry faces in second grade, which is just a V. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love to, I'd love to see that. It's also funny because um, his uh, the the um, fuck not the the Klingons are essentially just like well we're gonna put a little bit of brown face <laughs> on some actors <laughs> and make them look very severe Here's so it's what, like you took that that little bit of Vulcan severeness and he just put it into the Klingons I mean here's what's crazy to think about it like on their news every day in like this so Star Trek premiered in 1966 they're showing like bombed out churches where white supremacists killed like black kids and they're like hmm, pointy eared white guy mm, no thank you <laughs> it's a bit much. That's, that's a bit. I think that's asking the audience a little bit. Like, the, the kind of, like, like no wonder all these boomer parents' minds are just broken. Because they're, like, they 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 had to watch, like, um, unspeakable racist acts all the time. And then also when they turned on the TV, like, the husband and wife slept in, like, beds on opposite ends of the house. <laughs> <laughs> all right honey i'm going to bed <laughs> make sure you wear a jacket you know the roof is cold <laughs> we gotta save heat so the communists don't get take over the country power's a privilege Dick Van Dyke trips over an ottoman electricity's a privilege not a right <laughs> uh, brought to you by winston cigarettes yeah oh. uh yeah so anything else uh i want to get into insurrection um i think like uh, yeah i just want to talk about the prime director real quickly because i i, I sure. i'm teasing but like i'm not failing to understand that it's an aspirational thing right it's sort of like with um the samurai and the bushido code or like 
I don't fucking know. Most religions in their code, like uh, most reli- most Judeo Christian religions in the Ten Commandments, right? Like the um, the there's a core set of tenets that you're supposed to re- return to, and it's the idea that an imperfect species can perfectly follow any set of tenets is ridiculous, right? It's supposed to be aspirational. It's supposed to be a guiding principle. Um, you know, you can obviously be punished for completely disregarding it or, you know, improperly implementing the prime directive here. Um, but that's also like, that's true of all moral codes throughout time, right? Like the Bushido code didn't mean that the, that the average Japanese, uh, you know, uh, sword carrying guy was any more honorable than a knight or a Saracen. It just meant that they had a code they very much honored that code in, 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 in terms of their speech and how they talked about it and how, you know, Kirk and, and Picard both mm. like the prime directive, prime directive, prime directive. But then they run into a, a practical issue that the Bushido code does not allow for. They run into a practical issue that um, the prime directive does not allow for. Um, and then all of a sudden they have to, you know, become a, a, a human sentient being that, that, that reacts to situations and occasionally screws up and has to try and reroute this, this uh, you know, train that's derailing back to its original core. So, like, I'm teasing, obviously, but I understand the point is that, like, it's not it's not that they they that every other crew in the whole universe followed this shit perfectly. It's just we're running into weird enough situations that they can't be followed. It's that, like, you know, sometimes it's really easy. Like, oh, these two cultures are going to go at war. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, these two cultures are going to go at war, but like, you know, it, it, stepping in as a third party would cause more harm than good. All right, we'll leave them alone. Or like, uh, mm. these so two, I, I mean, I, like, I get what you're saying, but that is so that's the way Star Trek, the original series treated it from here on out. It is essentially not treated that way. Like it is treated like if Picard were to violate the um the prime directive he would lose his ship and potentially be court-martialed yes but the understanding is that like they was not say this but that also would happen with like the bushido code right you could put someone in an impossible position and they were expected to follow it and then they would be judged later for you know not adhering to it or interpreting it incorrectly so to speak right yeah i th- i think that's i think that's essentially right and obviously when you have a code like that it makes for good dramatic television because you think about like what would be the type of code well what would be the type of like uh things that would bump up against that code that would make you go well that's not a reason to have that rule and i i think one thing that star trek when it's like dealing with that as a rule does well is i mean there i don't think there's a captain that doesn't violate the prime directive because at some point they run into situations where um uh, I hate saying humanism in this case, but lifeism or whatever. Like, tr- like it's worth going to j- like in the same way that like uh, you know it, there are things that are worth getting in trouble for, like going to jail for. As as so many like you know civil rights activists have shown us, or you know fa- anti-fascist actors and stuff like that. Like this can be a rule that may be good, could be bad, but sometimes it's important to. Uh, the you know people's rights, uh, humanity existence trumps trumps those rights, and then 
Uh, and, and so there's a lot of like trying to figure out how to square those things with also rec- with, while, while also recognizing that in some ways interference is trampling on, uh, you know, people's right to exist in a way too, right? Like, you know, um, and and can it make it worse which is sometimes like does does the does the short term act potentially um reckon with the long term implication so i you know I, I sometimes think you know sometimes prime directive episodes are an obstacle to be overcome uh which was a lot of tos sometimes it's a philosophical argument to be to be had it works it, in some ways it's just this fun like here's a code for the federation and then as writers we can either use this as a obstacle or a uh, 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 something to uh, to hang the the episode's theme on or you know something to put the crew in danger from punish like you know it's like anything else it's used as a it's not it's not a real code yeah, so. and, it, and it's bigger than all of them, but yeah. it's not a religion, right? Because if it was a religion, it would like intersect. Like that's just it's just Peter, wouldn't fit. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you like you've watched enough Trek to know that it is not a religion, and also what Star Trek thinks about religion. Yeah, <laughs> like it's not it's not a religion, but it's bigger than them, right? It's the one thing yeah. uniting the Federation, so to speak, right? Is that like it's it's one of those those you know peace treaties and um, you know a broader more humanist understanding of the universe or speciesist I don't know understanding of the universe um, and then also the prime directive is like the, the building principle of the federation so like I, I get I get it that like they need something to create a conflict that like basically you know all of Kirk's or excuse me all of Picard's ship will be united basically behind him or will have a, a philosophical disagreement with him about that uh, well, and sometimes, you know, as the captain of the ship, where Picard's conflict and sometimes some of the more interesting character moments is that, like, Picard is, and I think you've seen this with even the amount of Star Trek you've seen, like, a just, honorable, whatever positive, you know, adjectives you want to put on him, he is that. And so he constantly has to come out, come out of situations where he feels like he has to do – make make the personally wrong decision – um, or a, a decision that is uncomfortable or tough or something he would do the opposite of personally in order to enforce um, a, a bigger picture scenario, even if that feels terrible in the moment. So that's why I said a lot of times the Picard is the obstacle in the situations because you have a, a Riker or a Geordi or a Beverly who um, is more like isn't doesn't feel the same weight of leadership or command or whatever else that that this is something that ultimately he's responsible for how his crew and other people behave and so they tend to advocate more for like you know their positions and then picard unfortunately is in that situation where it's like yes but this violates you know the rules and i'm i rules that are there for a good reason like theoretically um so it's I think it's I think it's it, it makes for it's made for some great episodes of television. I think this this leans toward very good um, for I mean, it is true that for the original series, it was literally just something for McCoy or Spock to say to Picard or to Kirk for and for him to go. I don't care about the prime directive. People's lives are at stake, you know, Um 
but it, it just never it never it became bigger as next generation consciously like i said the creators of that sh- of next generation were very much like hey let's actually make like the prime directive a thing and they really as you can see they they tried to make picard kind of the anti-kirk which is why i think sometimes these movies are so frustrating this one especially where like this is the, this is a time where like picard is all the idea that Picard, this is the moment that finally gets him to suddenly go, well, I quit fa- I quit Star Trek. I quit Star Trek. There's a girl I like. I don't want you to move him. I don't care if it's for immortality for the galaxy. <laughs> like, I quit my ship. And it just, it, and I'm going to go live in the caves and get a gun. Um, it just, it feels like uh, the writers of these movies sometimes wanted to write Kirk movies and didn't know how to write Picard movies, even when um, even when they had written Picard stuff for literally years and years. So I think with that, Peter, why don't we pivot to Star Trek Insurrection? Let's do it. So we're going to uh, we're going to do what we we've started doing on Star Trek, which is we're going to give a little background, and then instead of doing a plot recap and talking about things, we're going to do a plot recap as we talk about things, which uh, makes a little more sense, I think, for for this show. So, how did this movie get made? Um, shit, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. So, let's talk about uh, how the means in which the production, the means of production of which Star Trek Insurrection came to exist. <laughs> um, Here's the weird thing is that this movie was touted as like, we're going back to basics. We're going to do an episode of the show. We're going to go back to what Star Trek The Next Generation was about as opposed to these big epic adventures. Like that was the that was the sell tagline, right? Like that was all the marketing. That's what when I when you see interviews and promo stuff, it's kind of about we just had to go back to the basics, which is odd. It is odd because Star Trek First Contact uh, at its time was the most successful Star Trek movie. Uh, it was critically successful, more than Star Trek Generations. It was the biggest box office success in the franchise to date. That would eventually get taken over by the J.J. Abrams movies. Um, and so it's weird that normally when you have that level of success in a franchise that was going as long, your instinct is not to go back to basics and to, to think of this a little better. And this, this movie does even have an analogy in the Star Trek universe. So Star Trek in, Into Darkness was kind of a movie that even though it did okay box office, no one really liked it at the end of the day. Star Trek fans didn't like it. The movie audiences didn't love it. And so when they went and did Star Trek Beyond, which I actually think is the 
the better version of let's do a feature length Star Trek episode. Let's pare it down a little bit. And then they made a really good, still a big budget movie, but with this idea of let they're going on a mission to this planet and what happens on this planet as opposed to some, you know, Earth destroying or galaxy defining or Federation destroying or Enterprise destroying type type mission that made you know star trek beyond doing that which we'll talk about uh, eventually in the series made a lot of sense because star trek in, in into darkness was at best you could say divisive in a lot of different ways and the biggest criticism was that they tried to do they tried to do a federation-wide conspiracy and uh you know do pull all these these threads from the other movies and try to hit these emotional like death notes that they didn't commit to and it it feels like the perfect example of going too big or too like uh, I, I, too big, at least conceptually, that just kind of made the movie not fun almost immediately. And and so Star Trek Beyond seems like an understandable course correction. This is a bizarre course correction after the level of success, again, critically and commercially that they had. It makes a little more sense when you find out that, like, so they saw this movie as, like, their Star Trek to they saw, sorry, they saw First Contact as their Wrath of Khan. A big, successful, critically loved movie. If we're looking at Star Trek, the original series movies, as a template, what is the next logical um, move to make a successful movie? Well, What's the other most successful Star Trek movie? Star Trek for the Voyage Home, which was a light, fun adventure that was had a lot of comedic elements. So they went into Star Trek Insurrection uh, with a Paramount kind of and Rick Berman saying, great, we did our first uh, we sorry, we did our Wrath of Khan with First Contact. Let's do our Voyage Home. And then they proceeded to get every possible thing wrong on that journey. Like, I like if they would have done a lighter adventure where Picard's not as um, not as haunted by, you know, his abuse at the hands of the Borg, and it's it's not uh, you know galaxy scale or Federation scale level adventure. I think there w- there were ways to take it, even though. What you almost expect to happen just commercially is like, let's go even bigger, knowing that this one was successful. And then the next one's a misfire and they try to shrink. They tried to shrink immediately. And it just seems like on every level, the the fact that they thought that that was a good next move for this franchise just seems completely misguided. I, I, I'm fine with the shrinking. I like the idea of just like, let's engage with one culture that has settled on a planet and how do we figure out the, the you know, threading the needle morally, like I said earlier. I'm fine with, I'm fine with that as a scale. The problem is, but like, the nothing hold on, before, you're, the you're fine with that, but I think the question is, Aren't you surprised that like Rick Berman and the suits at Paramount wanted to do that? That feels like like that feels antithetical to their business model. And there's like no dog fights really. There's yeah. no there's no real big adventure stuff. Like the Briar Patch and all of the fighting that goes on in space is looks worse than anything on the show. Which is uh, it's the fir- it's the first time they did CGI. It, it, it's it's horrific. 
Like yeah, it looks, exactly. it looks absolutely miserable. It looks worse than anything that I've seen on the show. Or I mean, it's it's nineteen ninety eight CGI. Yeah, it, it's aged. Yeah, awful, and it, it hasn't even aged in a charming way. Like, like old Wing Commander games, where you're or like, Babylon Five, where it's like, oh my god, these are PlayStation One graphics for all your space scenes. Yeah, yeah, or like, okay, so Blade Two is one of my favorite movies on the earth. We'll talk about that um, this summer. Um, but uh, there's a scene where uh, Blade and a, a vampire ninja are having a fight, and everybody is just rubbery. Yeah. But, it, but like, it was a conscious effort for this one shot. We're going to do this one CGI effect because it would be a huge pain in the ass to do with wires. Let's just do it. Like, And it's gotten to the point where that is, like, charming to me, even though it doesn't look very good. This is something that I don't think would ever be charming to me because it's just an era that, like... It's just an era of, of ugly CGI that, like, I, I think is, is probably only worth studying as, like, film historians because it's yeah. not convincing. It has this awful, ugly texture. And there were action movies of this era doing far more impressive stuff in terms of the actual animation quality. So there's, like, there's like you know, multiple layers of why when we say there's bad CGI, right? There's the – but there's the, the, there's the top layer, which is texturing. How does light interact with the object? That's one of the hardest things you can do. That's why uh, with PS5, with PlayStation 5, everyone's talking about ray tracing and shit is because, like, what they're really talking about is how does light play with the object? Um, Then down another level, um, how many, like, uh, what kind of colors are you playing with, right? Like, are you, does this, does it seem like this has a, a viable pe- color palette? Does this feel like it, the, the color palette me- meshes with the photography? Does this object blend in with the rest of the other objects, but also stand out as, you know, an active piece? And at the bottom level is animation, the skeletal framework of what makes CGI, right? Like the wireframe that it is, it is operating on. And like, it's, so odd to me when you're watching a movie like this that like i understand it's it's an issue with both um you know it's a nascent art art form mm-hmm. cgi at this time but also like um a money thing a time thing like you need to give these artists a lot of time to experiment and say okay that looks like shit let's do it again um and with this the actual skeletal framework of it the actual animation animation how how stuff moves looks so bad i can forgive bad texturing and actually find some like brown muddy textures kind of charming from this era but like everything just the how it moves from a to b within a frame doesn't click with me yeah. it doesn't look like it doesn't look, it looks worse than a video game because in a video game it is it is essentially a real object because it matches everything else like everything looks at least there's there's a consistency yeah. to its shittiness it needs to be consistent it needs to be scaled properly also which this movie has a problem with scale it needs to be scaled properly because like um the the the, ob- the spaceship in star fox needs to be able to crash into another object when that happens. Whereas well, this, it, it's just like, it's like, it, it, it feels like they redid wireframes every shot. Well, part of the reason for that, too, is that so not only do you have the 1998 CGI problem, you also have the fact that Industrial Light Magic, who had actually worked on the previous Star Trek movie and had done a few Star Trek movies to that point, was indisposed and couldn't work on this movie because they were doing uh, episode one. Because it's 1998. So 
I, I, I forget which special effects house did it. I don't think it's one that's around anymore. But at the very least, with Industrial Light Magic, like with the last movie, you're dealing with people that it still would have looked like 1998 CGI, but probably would have kept a level of like – Consistency in in in, yeah. the, in the special effects, and obviously that that goes away. So that's ultimately a big loss. And then they also move away from models uh, for for to save money because it was cheaper to do you know models model work and model special effects is extraordinarily expensive, which is why you have all these um, space battles in uh, the next generation when they did do them of like two ships sitting still, occasionally like leaning to the to the right and firing a phaser even at a movie level it's expensive to do that level of model work so you know it's it's the it's the more cost effective while still having movie level special effect shots but again you're dealing with 1998 level technology without the kind of masters in special effects technology that had been involved uh, in the last one uh so early drafts of this film were going to involve Q, which it, it's kind of crazy that Q doesn't end up in a next generation movie. Uh, Q's in... You know, there's not a primary antagonist to to Star Trek The Next Generation. If there was, it would be, be Q. Uh, kind of a consistent part of the whole of the whole series, which you've seen a couple episodes on. One of our future episode arcs will be some more Q stuff. And Q also tends to, for the most part, uh, you have not got a good sense of this yet, Peter, because you've seen two of the more serious Q episodes and some of the the, the two er, two of the earliest. Um, but when you're ask when you're asking how do you add lightness to Star Trek: The Next Generation, Q, especially in the later seasons, was the way to go, right? Because he didn't take the proceedings as serious. A lot of the comedy was derived for uh, derived from um, Picard and the rest of the crew wanting nothing to do with his his jokes, and like that makes a lot of sense at least from a hey, we did the Borg, we did the passing of the baton with Kirk. What's another movie idea? Will we bring Q into the proceedings? And and ultimately, that at least... I don't know if it would have been good or bad, but it made a lot of sense. This movie went through uh, a lot of drafts. And uh, Patrick Stewart, who was now a producer, who had some level of script approval, um, didn't like any of the drafts that they kept doing, which were, which were this... But more comedic, and there's a, there's a lot of different incarnations that they kind of went through as they do for any of these movies, where there's a two year turnaround time, and they're working from the perception of, hey, this we're gonna do lighter, and we're gonna do smaller, and based on that, like let's write a script. So they took, you know, they went back to the well a little bit of, um, um, um the well of first doing episodes uh era steven burr's initial idea was hey if we want to do this like if we want to do a next movie that's a little more personal and a little more gets into the heart of star trek and has people like question what's going on they had the idea of doing a heart of darkness type story where an admiral was on this planet that he's not supposed to be at because of the prime directive and had kind of lost himself in this culture and picard is kind of tasked to go back and 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 uh and bring them back and then they took that concept and added they're like well we want it lighter than that so then they did that but a comedic version of it uh which went over poorly and essentially um 
then they they started to go okay well let's if we're not taking characters from the series let's let's um let's pull out um stuff from the actual episodes where they take like homeward is an episode where they relocate people by holodeck um uh journey's end is the one i mentioned about the relocation of indigenous people uh who watches the watchers is obviously the episode that we talked about which is about like uh supervising a race uh of an alien race who doesn't know that they're there um and then there was also a lot of like hey there's actually a lot this is going on in the Star Trek universe right now. So this movie comes at the end of the sixth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine at this point, Peter, which is why I'd like to figure out a way to cover some of it, has uh, turned into, is producing some of their best, some of the best Star Trek that's ever been, but is also the Federation is at war with a, with a, with a, with a culture called the Dominion, who are like thing-like shapeshifters. This is the one where uh, 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 Jeffrey, uh, or Jeff, uh, shoot. Jeffrey Combs? Je- yeah, Jeffrey Combs plays Wei Yoon, who's like part of that whole war. They're coming in from the Gamma Quadrant, which is what's going on in Deep Space Nine. Uh, the the Romulan and the Cardassian empires have been severely close to wiped out based on the Dominions attacking them. The Klingons are no longer at peace with the Federation. Like, shit is going on. And so there was a lot of like, hey, we have a big budget movie. Should we set it in what's going on in Star Trek right now? Like, on the TV screens. And they didn't want to do that. Uh, they felt like that so would much be... Co- it'd be so much cooler if it was just like there was this massive ba- this massive war going on and then they could have done a crossover between the shows. Like... Yeah, like... It, there was, so there, much there, more promising. Well, no, I mean, it was huge. So here's the... So they... Um, and those those episodes, like it was right after this that you end up with like basically what's a like a seven part Deep Space Nine episode that really gets into like this war and like because it's it's full blown. So the idea that the Enterprise, the flagship, is not like what a what a great chance to get this cast and this this thing back into like. Like, if you're watching Deep Space Nine, you know the Enterprise has to be doing shit. Like, this is the biggest global or, you know, universal event or galaxy-wide event that the Federation has ever encountered. They're they're infiltrated at the highest level of their commands and all because they're shapeshifters and stuff like that. It's really good shit. And so, the idea that's like, nah... Let's, Let's just, just do a, a rehash of other shit we've done a million times before and do it dumber. Yeah, so then they tried to like say, well, what let's if we shoot you know, some again, weird dumb drones out of the air. They did a couple like. Um, then they also did a draft where like um, it turns into the Battle of Al- of the Alamo, which is what they called it. That version where like um, they're getting at you know that basically okay, we take the Federation people, the, our our Enterprise crew, and they have to defend this outpost like from invade you know from the the Federation and the alien invaders and stuff like that, and everyone's like. Yeah, why are we even doing a space like Star Trek? Like we could do an Alamo thing, which I guess actually speaks to the politics of this movie, maybe a little bit more. Uh, like that seems done, and basically Patrick Stewart this whole time is like, "This is all bad. I don't want to be a part of it." And it was like getting in Variety that they couldn't agree on a story for a Star Trek movie because Patrick Stewart wouldn't give a sign off. So there has the final- to be some sort of ego game going on that. 
the folks behind TNG didn't want to play with the folks behind DS9? Is there no, no, there Michael? My, no, no, Michael Pillar, like the writers for this movie, worked on DS9. Like, but absolutely. Was there, not. was there some producer that it's Rick that Berman? Wasn't uh, every comedy? bad decision is Rick Berman. Rick Berman did not want to confuse audiences by uh, you know making this movie. Which is dumb because you know what we know it actually did do that. Like, hey, we assume if you're watching Star Trek, this movie, we're gonna get a contingent of people that are watching the television show. Like, X Files: Fight the Future is, which came out this same summer, mind you, is actually a fantastic example of, hey, we just had some huge moments in this TV show that's becoming more and more popular. Let's like that movie is not incomprehensible. I actually saw it before I was fully caught up with the conspiracy stuff in the show. I saw it in theaters. Um, and I left away going, holy shit, that's so cool. I need to dive into this series to figure out some of the parts that I clearly like was missing from the series. But still like had an epic scale, a big budget. Like they could easily done that for DS9. Get these characters that are somewhere in the universe of DS9 that are definitely involved. And like still make it somewhat isolated from like – if I'm coming in as just a general audience member, I'm going to at least be able to follow what's going on while still like leading to a bigger narrative that's going to make people want to tune in to Star Trek Deep Space Nine Season 7. And maybe if you're just getting some like collateral damage, uh, Star Trek Voyager Season 4 or whatever it isn't was. That what D- isn't that what cold opens are for? Like, isn't yeah. that why cold opens are invented? Like, okay... We're going to chuck you in the middle of shit and we're, there's just going to be a big battle scene going on. And then you're going to suddenly realize partway through the battle scene, like, oh, uh, you know, the Federation is in trouble and who, who are they in trouble with? And then you, your, your interest gets peaked because they can start this thing with a bang, have a big action sequence. You know, I don't know. There's some sort of civil war going on and then they start to realize, oh, here are the Dominion. And then they have a chance to explain the Dominion at the start of the movie, basically. And then I don't so even like, know. So like what are. you're saying and is then like then, and then, Star and then Trek then, first contact, which. And then Picard gets you, to come in and, and be some sort of turning point in a battle. And yeah. DS9 can use some of that to, you know, say, oh, thank God that this happened last season. And then DS9 can do whatever the fuck it wants for the rest of the season because it's their plot. Well, exactly. Like, that makes so much more sense. It also, like, if you're like, well, could that be successful? That was basically successful the last movie. Like, you – it helps if you know who the Borg was. It helps if you know that uh, uh, Picard was abducted by them. But the movie does a good enough job of at least making it entertaining and filling in the gaps as needed and showing little – having, like, little dialogue that explains stuff that, like – you're, you don't need – you're not going to be like completely fucking lost if this is the the last thing you saw Star Trek-wise was the last movie, right? And you never watched um, the TV show. So what's here's the, what's what, – like, what, uh, Do you think the Dominion are any harder to explain than the Borg? No, not at all. Um, so uh, actually potentially easier because the Borg really have a complex. Like this is just an alien race. They shapeshift. You've sort of shapeshifters <laughs> in movies. Uh, I mean, the they Borg are very are a little complex in that they just boil them down to evil robots in the movies. But at least yeah. like it's a culmination from the show. And if you're just coming into Star Trek stuff without watching the show, you'd be like, yeah, evil robots, whatever. And that's not like 
inaccurate. Well, here's the other thing that really... You'd at least get the two-thirds of the picture, right? Like, you'd at least get enough. Like you were saying with with X-Files, it's like, you could come in, and if the movie works with two-thirds of... Like, if you can come in as a a layman and just say, I don't know, I like sci-fi shit. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it does a great job of setting up that there's aliens, there's a government trying to cut it up, here's, here's what... Like, it does a really good job of doing that while not feeling like... Um, while not feeling like, oh, I watched the show, they're making a movie. Like, that is a great, I, I legitimately think Fight the Future, while not like a masterpiece of cinema, is a, is a really great movie and a great movie that, uh, that does this amazing thing of like following a season finale, <laughs> um, and setting up the next season. And makes it entertaining for anyone that just knows, yeah, I get it. They're paranormal investigators and like, there's aliens involved. Like it, it toes that line amazingly well. And I think, uh, Star Trek, at least attempting that in this movie would have made way more sense. Here's the other reason, Peter, why it would have made a ton of sense. And this is a little spoilery for deep space nine, but it's fine. Um, cause I don't know how deep we're going to eventually go into that. So obviously Worf ends up on deep space nine, uh, at the beginning of season four, uh, so what do you know? He's been, what did he do to get sent out there? Um, well, he there's a whole thing with like the Klingon. It's a great episode actually, where he joins the cast. I mean, just Michael Dorn being like, I'm not, I don't want to be done with Star Trek, and they made <laughs> no. I mean, from... the character it feels like it's like a backwater gig, right? Well, so it's where the Klingon Empire truce dissolves, and so they send uh, Worf out to Deep Space Nine because oh. the Klingons become overly paranoid about the Dominion and want everyone to do these blood tests and all these sort of things. And the Federation is like, this actually goes against our ethos, and the the Klingon like Gauron is like, uh, okay, but we're allies. Like we're supposed to be fighting this enemy uh, together, and so Gauron is like the Federation's weak, and we need strength at a time of leadership. So he asked Worf to come back and quit Starfleet, and eventually, like they're like, we could use you here. There's a lot going on, uh, and, and Worf stays. Worf ends up uh, marrying someone on that show, uh, J- uh, Jadzia Dax, which is this great like. Um, symbiote relationship where there's a host and a and a humanoid type thing that exists to create an individual person but the host moves on but they're not the same person even if they retain all the memories because when they meld with the next one so uh she was played by terry farrell who you probably know from like i don't know hellraiser 3 or becker (laughs) um So here's the thing. So they get married. Quite a credit list. They get married because they have a relationship going into the show because one of uh, uh, Jedzia Dax's uh, Dax's like former host was someone who was like pivotal. It was a humanoid. Was a was their species the Trill, but was pivotal in the Klingon Empire. So like they she he came with respect. She's like they end up getting married. Right? She died like the her humanoid body so Jadzia dies at the end of season 6 of Deep Space 9 uh, mainly cuz Terry Farrell didn't want to do a seventh season um, so they're able to keep the character in a new body for the last season, but the marriage is over because that's the whole thing about the Trill is that all your previous like connections and lives move on cuz you have become a new person. Um, so Worf is on this spaceship uh, doing who knows what, because like I said, they yada yada over it. They don't even offer an explanation. His wife has died a month ago, Tops. <laughs> uh, 
so they're like not they're they're basically like not even doing references to the show it feels so there's there was a scene they shot where like to be like hey don't you think so the last time you saw Worf is he is like his wife died that's the cliffhanger now he's on the Enterprise just having a good time with his buddies don't you think that's gonna be weird for anyone so they shot a scene of him having a nightmare um, about his wife dying, and then that got cut in the final edit because they're it would like, have well, no, no edit. It would have no impact on the plot. Worf is yeah. just a fucking. He's just, he's just a Mass Effect uh, yeah. vanguard in the. <laughs> it's quite a reference. Uh, Mass Effect shooter um, in the um, in the in the entire second half of this movie. There's no there's no themes of like refinding a new family or getting yeah. over guilt or getting over no um, you know your 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 mourning. Like there's no themes like that in the movie for it to fit. So it really like there's again, actually no were... reason for him to be in this movie other than like I'm happy Michael Dorn got a paycheck. Yeah, and also, like, why would you leave someone out of the movie, I guess, like that. But, um, so, from, so Star Trek fans were just completely perplexed by this, because it, it, it references the Dominion War. It's not about it. Like, you would think it would, here's the Enterprise crew in this, in, in some real shit going on. I was yeah. looking so hard for I was I was watching so hard for like just anything to grab my attention. I didn't even hear that. Oh, they just mentioned, you know, they sold this to the Dominion, like a reference like, hey, we know that this is a huge thing going on right now. Like you're about to have a Federation wide war. Uh, but yeah, like so fans of this, like one thing that's so perplexing is they again, they decided to ignore all of that, even though if you were a Star Trek fan, this was the biggest shit that was going on, right? So, and you have one of the characters who just had the most devastating personal loss. And fans of the show are bummed. Dax Rule, like, she's one of the best characters on that show. Of a, uh, Deep Space Nine has almost exclusively great characters. But, you, you know, she died. And here's Worf, who you've, if you're a Star Trek fan, you've known, who just is like... Yeah, I'm going to go talk about boobs in the desert, I guess, and joke around with my friends. And so it felt like not only are you massively reducing the scale to something that's ultimately somewhat inconsequential, you're doing it at the weirdest time with a character who it doesn't belong to. Finally, before we get in the movie, the last thing I'll say is that how they end up getting Patrick Stewart's approval is also just a crazy story. So they've had the final draft of this. They send it, even though he's the producer, they send it to everyone in the cast except Patrick Stewart and then ask the cast for reactions to the script, which are obviously like they're talking to producers and like it's not like fucking Marina Citrus is going to be like, what a piece of garbage or something like that. So they get their positive quotes and then they leak them all to Variety. And so Patrick Stewart first finds out about this script from hearing his castmates praise how great it is in Variety, setting him up to be at least seen as the heavy if he rejects the script for like the fourth time or whatever he's been doing. So then he ultimately accepts the script as a result and does it. And um, which is just like, I mean, it does sound like one of those weird like studio producer power moves, but that's how they eventually got Patrick Stewart. Yeah, to Patrick sign Stewart on to is a good guy. <laughs> he was able to be manipulated. Yeah, like oh shit, like everyone likes this. Okay, well, if everyone's liking this, but again, that was like pure 
pure manipulation on the part of of the studio and like it's it's extremely odd to send your script to the castmates and not the one the lead of your lead of your movie and the producer on the movie because well, at that point off. they had decided he was just being difficult as opposed to hey there's really no reason for us to spend a yeah. bunch of money on something that no one's gonna like so I didn't listen to the commentary on this. I would have liked to if time had permitted. I did look up some stuff because there's a Frank Citrus uh, commentary. Frank's obviously comes back to direct. And then because of the shitty hand they've dealt him, they decide he needs to go for Star Trek Ten Nemesis, which then they make an even worse decision, which we'll get into uh, next time. But All uh, I know is Borg again. No, there's no Borg in Nemesis. Isn't Tom Hardy a Borg? No, he's a Romulan. He's a clone of he's a clone of Picard. Uh, it's it's garbage. But uh, but as a, as a teaser, <laughs> I gotta watch that. Yeah, the, as a teaser, <laughs> I the, was at least uh, like, oh, they're made of another bo- boring Borg movie, but they're fun to look at. It's just just gonna be a bo- <laughs> never mind. I, I'm not gonna bail now. <laughs> no, I mean we'll get back to a lot of good stuff after. Yeah, that, yeah, so I'm excited go. for it's you know it's it's like going to it's like going to church. Before Christmas, you know, you got to pay your dues to get to the the real the real presents. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and this is definitely that. Um, but they brought in a Stuart Bard, who we'll talk about a lot next time, who had oh, never the great, seen the great Bard. Well, not only did he, they were like, let's inject some new life. They did it for someone who. Um, didn't like Star Trek and had never watched it and refused to watch it preparing for the movie. Um, Mm. And all of the cast fucking hated him, which they talk about quite a bit. And part of the reason that Star Trek Picard happened was because of Patrick Stewart's still uh, lightly simmering rage that that was where fucking the studio left uh, all the cast and everything like that. So can I actually can we can we park there? Because I think that's a good entrance for what I want to say. Okay. The show, the original series, was canceled for stupid reasons, and they made a movie series to kind of continue it, and the movies were fairly successful, some of them very successful. Yep. So they kept getting made um, to the point that, you know, um, it's kind of kind of sad in some respects where you're like oh they're still making kirk movies didn't he say goodbye to us like three movies ago um yeah but they were still good for most of the run yeah but for me i was like i none of this can function as closure if you refuse to actually give closure <laughs> um, so like and like i like that that's one problem with like yeah. rewatching some of the movies is i'm like this is clearly about the original crew saying goodbye and then the next movie, just like two of the minor cast are gone. <laughs> okay, so it was those guys saying goodbye. When is Kirk going to say goodbye? Oh, never. Got it. Um, well, actually, hold on. I'm not trying to interrupt. William Shatner pitched a sequel. Did I tell you that? To Generations, where the Borg find him and resurrect him. Um, and Paramount said, no, thank you. And he went and wrote that novel and then a sequel to that novel. Wow. He really, like... He really could not let that shit go, huh? No. The only thing he lets go of easy is his wives. <laughs> Through suspicious means. <laughs> when are we going to have a whole episode about the, the ex-wives? Yeah. William William Shatner and Christopher Walken and 
it'll, like, it'll be our most sued episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> our most requested by the district court of Los yeah. Angeles County episode. Most, most, oh, our listenership went up. Do you think it's because all the people in the, in the California County Clerk's Office are listening to it for evidence? <laughs> Uh, so um i don't like this movie no it's terrible it sucks and it's useless and it's a movie that like actively makes me mad the more i think about it which is like one of those it's it's kind of like into darkness in that regard as well where like the longer i dwell on it the more i'm like no it's not just a movie It, it actively it actively makes me mad that this was a lost opportunity right yeah oh definitely like i i i feel like the idea for me of like Picard so far is that like he has built up a crew of very competent, very thoughtful leaders. And like, that's what something we talked about in a previous episode that like fucking Riker and Worf both should have been their own Picards, but they stuck around on the shows proper for, you know, Riker for the entire run, right? Riker never leaves. Uh, no, in, in the next uh, next movie, he has his own ship. And he's, uh, I think, getting married to Troy. Okay, yeah. But, like, that, that further narrows down my, my point, which is that Picard became an expert leader and he did something that Kirk never did, which is, like, I'm, I'm raising people that can... Be, not just represent themselves in their heart and their ethics, but also can represent the prime directive and can be great people for, you know, Star Command. Like, mm-hmm. they can they can lead their own ships. They don't Star, need to be... Work- Starfleet is Starfleet. what it's called. Star Command is definitely something, but I don't think it's in this. Probably book. from Buzz Lightyear? <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you get my point, right? He's, I would have rather seen a movie where Picard fights do, right? off against uh, Zerg. <laughs> Good managers don't create underlings. Yeah. They good well, That's why he has the whole managers. briefing room, right? Like I I want everyone's input before I ultimately make a decision. Yeah, good good and it's the same thing with like let me take it out of like a stupid business context so, so it'll be less cringy. Um good leaders create good leaders. Um and I feel like an expert sort of way for him to exit is like take Riker take the enterprise. I need to retire. And, like, my vision of him retiring is, like, finding a primitive culture, taking a step back and saying, like, I'm going to start a vineyard on this planet and I'm going to continue my family legacy. I'm going to grow the, you know, the fucking grapes that I grew, that my family grew, but I'm going to do it on a different planet than Earth. Um, And trying like something like that. The vineyard thing is just something that stuck with me because family is such an amazing episode. Um I'm excited like, to get to something, but we will get there. But, like, the, the, the idea to me is that, like, Picard could have made something in this movie, some element in this movie where he falls in love and, you know, has to say goodbye. The idea of him falling in love with this, like, <laughs> I don't know, what is it, a 300-year-old being? 309-year-old being? Who likes younger dudes in their <laughs> 60s. He says, I've always liked older women. Like, it's one of the only jokes in the movie that works, right? Yeah. Um, that could have been a graceful exit for Picard and for Patrick Stewart to go out, like, happily tending to grapes while knowing that it's not him giving up on the fight for the Federation. It's him knowing that, like, 
there are people out there that he created, that he trained. Well, not created. There are people out there that he trained that are pushing forward his legacy and pushing forward the legacy uh, mm-hmm. of Star Command, Buzz Lightyear. Um, <laughs> that, like, that feels like an expert end for what the show has shown me so far. And in this, it's just sort of like a Hollywood kind of dumb like romance thing we're like well the lead needs to have sex yeah they need to make another movie so th- that was the idea right lighter funnier sexier like that is the quote so i'm i'm, I'm not you like that was the idea and um you didn't really have like a a romance driven star trek movie um even like kirk with like Carol Kirk, who was like a fuck machine on the television show, his only like I think like real romantic interests in the movie are like Carol Marcus, who was like his old girlfriend, who finds out they have a son with, like the repercussions of like being a star hopper who fucks and then flies across the galaxy, and then um, I'm forgetting her name, but the doctor in Star Trek Voyage Home, which which again is not like they never like make out. Right. Like they just there's clearly an attraction between the two, but it's it's uh, only maybe because Kirk is like overtly sexual to everyone. So it feels that way. But there's never like a we're in love with each other or there's just flirtatious. And and so this is like one thing about the next generation that was that was common. I mean, you're talking about, I think, 178 episodes like there's episodes where everyone has their romantic love interest right like wesley has a crush uh jordy has a crush uh picard finds someone Did on a planet choose the term crush specifically yeah no but i wish i would have because yeah wesley's got a crusher uh yeah no at uh, wesley very uh is in love with ashley judd and they play a fuck video game anyways that's a different um that makes sense Different episode. Uh, Jordy falls in love with a hologram. Even there's like data love episodes, right? Where he's like dating a crew member to try to get into the human experience, and then is like, "Yeah, I don't love you because I'm a robot." I thought that was clear. Like, there's there's Patrick Stewart. Like, they all have them on Next Generation, and so like I think just doing it in a movie to some random character as like a C plot doesn't really work. And then to increase the sexiness level, they give something which theoretically, uh, you know, uh, the moonlighting thing that fans wanted to see, like there was, there is not an episode of star Trek, the next generation where they like that, uh, Riker and Troy get back together. There's close things. There's weird parallel universe shit. There's Riker's clone that, that Troy strikes up a relationship with. At one, like, you know, it's 178 episodes of a sci-fi series. But they never, like, rekindle the relationship that they had before the pilot, right? Where the, when they meet each other on the crew or on the bridge of the Enterprise and encounter Farpoint, they, like, are telepathically talking, calling each other Imzadi and, and recognizing, like, a love that they used to have when um, when they were in the Academy or whatever else together. I think it wasn't quite the Academy, but whatever. Um so they, they're like, hey, you know what would be fun for this movie is, like, a fan thing. Let's shave off. Riker's beard, which he's still a cutie. I'm glad they did that. No no qualms about shaving the beard. Um, but let's make Troy and Riker get together. And what's so frustrating about that um, 
is that I don't know if we've just decided we're not going to do the plot, which it may be fine if you're listening to a Star Trek podcast. But uh, what's so frustrating about that is there and like so I will admit when I saw this, I saw this in theaters. I would have been 15. I was a horny 15 year old and mm-hmm. I wanted to be Riker and I had a crush on Troy. I was psyched about them getting together finally, right? Like that's a I'm exactly the type of of person at that age that this is meant for. Like I don't need any context, I don't need any actual sexiness. It's just like, yeah, finally these two old people fucking, which is how they in, in retrospect how they approach it in this movie. Like, ah, I don't know. We're kind of old and, and and corny. Like, why don't we fuck and take baths together and shave each other? Why? Um, but it was like, it was like, oh, awesome for me as a 15 year old. And seeing it now, like one thing I recognize from the show, those times that they like almost get together. Hope she listens to this, bro. Uh, those times that they almost get together on the show or like reference their relationship or wonder if there's something that's still worth pursuing it's just it's so much more part of the reason I think that like as a fan it was something that you were probably shipping to some degree before that was even a term is that it felt important and it felt there there was like romance and stuff like that this they do in just the laziest way where they are just two old goofs Troy's like, I don't know, trying to be like flirty and sexy and it comes off poorly as is as is Riker. Like the whole like everything about it is just like watching your parents kiss and it's not fun and it's not <laughs> sexy. They're both and so, like they're both so pretty and they're both like so charming together, but like it 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 does, yeah, it has there's, this sort of it has There's no inciting like, incident. There's nothing that like Hey, you know, as we have grown, like, they don't even have the, like, hey, you know, uh, as we've grown older, or, like, they don't have any sort of moment. It's just a, all of a sudden they start flirting a little bit suddenly, and then they kiss, and then Troy complains about it, I've never kissed you with the beard, which isn't technically true, because he kissed the clone. Uh, um, Not the clone, transporter accident, but essentially a clone. Um, And he had a beard, so that's just a fucking lie, too, Troy. Um, And he's uh, done a lot of smooching, okay? It's already. And then, yeah, and then he 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 shaves the beard, and you find out Troy's shaving the beard. Like, that's it. Like, it is, it is the. Like, when people say something is fan service, this is what they mean. There's nothing dramatically to make the audience that's watching this movie excited that these two people are getting together. It is only there for people who have watched other media to go, finally. Finally. Finally, they smooch. Um, but yeah, it, it was something that was a little frustrating to me, too, because, like, it doesn't satisfy any romantic sort of pull here, and it doesn't satisfy character pull, either. Like, it's not like they start the movie in love, and then they help each other satisfy some sort of a character issue. Like, anybody really grows in this movie. Um, Picard... St- takes off his uh his you know starship buttons um, for no reason like which do you literally for, for like the worst reason on like he has stuck if you'd watched the show he had stuck through so much shit 
And the idea that this, like we talked about the at the beginning, but the idea that this is like the, well, the Federation's trying to make people live longer. Time to hang up my hat and get a gun. Like, it is so <laughs> dumb. It's so dumb. Yeah. I don't... The data stuff is so bad. Like, all... Like, that's the thing. Is like, this was supposed to be the comedic thing. Well, first, the reason why Voyage Home was successful is that the comedic stakes were good. Right? We need to get two humpback whales. We're in a Klingon ship in San Francisco in the 80s. We have no idea how to get these things. We are fish out of water. We need to get other non-fish into water on our ship. Comedy ensues. The comedy in this situation is what? Yeah, there's there's no real character there's no real character conflict to cause any friction, right? There's like like I don't have like I my friction is with the movie itself. My friction yeah. is like with the conceptual problem that this is a problem. <laughs> like um that like this movie would be uh uh that that like this situation is actually improved by Picard being there. Like Yeah. I I don't agree with that. I don't and, and then at the end of the movie, like I I'm just left with this feeling like couldn't this have been Picard's goodbye? Couldn't this have been something? But would that... this? I don't think this would have been satisfying. I mean, I look. No, no, I... no, no, no. A good version of this story, right? Like Picard oh, yeah. finding Picard finding this this culture and like essentially saying like, <clears throat> you know, I don't know if this is the end of my story, but this is my end of, end of my story for now. I have I've had my children. My children are you. My children are Worf and Riker and and all of you. And we've I've pushed you to but be specifically better. not Wesley. He is Jack Crusher's kid. I want to be very clear. <laughs> DNA test that I've manipulated will prove. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I just it's 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 um it's one of those. And then it, like it's not really worth talking about the incredibly boring third act. But let's let's talk about it really quickly. Hold on before the, hold on before we get to the third act. I think it is important to. Uh, get just mention a couple things, which is, I I I I think even that like the the culture that they're doing, like how misguided this movie is, is um that it you're doing a Star Trek movie, like like Star Trek, don't start like Star Trek. Star Trek is like about future shit, right? It's about Star Trek in the future. And the idea that they run into a civilization that they deem the heroes, that everyone starts, like, literally changing their – quitting Starfleet and the cool spaceship stuff to do on a culture that's like, technology is dumb. And we're supposed to buy into their message. It just feels like, why is this in a Star Trek movie? <laughs> like, it would be one thing if it was, like, a cult that ultimately ended up being evil that, like, convinced these people. But, like, who wants to – like, just, just on the most base level, who wants to go to a Star Trek movie to be told that, that future stuff is dumb? Like, it – why why are we why are we here if that's if that's the message you're sending like i get you as the producer or the writer maybe a little sick of making movies with laser guns and spaceships but do you really think that that is a compelling message and the fact that like john luke picard who's his whole thing is that he thought science 
and the pursuit of technology and exploration and expansion of human knowledge was so important that like he had that schism with his family about it and didn't want to be a, a, a you know that was his whole thing with Robert like he was a science person the idea that he would hear this message and go you know what science is dumb <laughs> I think it's stupid too maybe I should live here with you lady like the it's so goddamn frustrating, Peter, because, like, I just don't even know what, like, why would this be compelling to people seeing a Star Trek movie? I'm not saying there's not a message for it. I'm not saying there's not a story for it. I'm not saying that these people couldn't be protagonists. Like, fucking go watch Witness when this is a great movie about good people who have given up on technology. Why would you want that from a Star Trek movie? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't understand it, and I don't understand why the end of the movie is this... <laughs> listless laconic chase through the mountains that like about all of our crew including the doctor shooting laser guns at drones and while commenting that their breasts are firmer because the and then data being like who apparently data the smartest person on the crew has never heard of the concept of breasts doesn't realize that he that that Worf doesn't have breasts. Can, can we actually take a huge step back and talk yeah. about the comedy in this movie? Because it's actually the thing that made me the most mad in the first 30 minutes. Because, like, I'm used to, like, corny Star Trek. Like, you know, a, a corny little line reading by Riker. But, like, it, it, it became a charming thing for me because... Or, like, like Data in Generations, right? Like, the whole point is that he's got this emotion chip and is saying all this crazy stuff. But... The crew also recognizes he's saying weirdo stuff, right? Like, yeah. like when he when he is he is having these emotional outbursts. It's not like everyone's like, "That's our data." They're like, "Data, are you okay?" <laughs> Which is what makes it funny. Yeah, yeah. Here they're like encouraging data to. I mean, this is. I mean, this literally roll in the hay with a child. <laughs> 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 this is ad. actually I mean this with no subtext. I want to be very clear that's not a I mean, double literally roll in the hay. He's rolling in the hay with a child. They decide that this movie that data should be friend with a kid to learn to be like a kid. I okay. Yeah, yeah, it's because for some reason they decided that this should be a comedy movie and they decided to only put corny ass awful jokes in it. So at the beginning of it data is having some sort of short circuit situation i didn't really remember why it's oh it's because it's because his um he got injured but so his ethics protocols took over which means that he recognized that uh i guess i guess they're saying objectively it's unethical to move these people off the planet because data starts threatening to kill everyone uh in order to not have this um yeah, there's uh, objective ethics, and a computer chip can determine it. I don't know why there's any humans. <laughs> but just to be clear, I want to be extremely clear. What this movie is essentially positing is if an unincorporated town of 300 people in Texas filled with white people, which is very clearly land that did not belong to them 200 years ago, if we found the secret to immortality and curing all diseases under that, it would be the equivalent of a genocide to ask them to move to a neighboring town. <laughs> and yeah, I think I, the 
fact I don't mean I don't no, take that lightly. The fact they that reference not, like protectors hold on, of the land. Hold right? on. Like they're not. They, they reference not the ho- like they reference the Holocaust and the genocide of indigenous they, people. They pulled out as the this, card. As this being the equivalent of. And it is offensive. Yeah, they pulled out the card for something that is clearly not genocide. Like I and they they pulled that they reference the Trail of Tears and like hey, yeah. did you know that actually American Indians, <laughs> the Native Americans had lived on that land. First Nations people lived on that land for much more than 300 years in and which is actually one generation for these people. <laughs> And yeah, and yeah, exactly. And to be clear, uh, even then, they weren't moving them out to give better lives to them and everyone else on the country. They were moving them out because they wanted the land. Just the land land. But Picard keeps making weirdo slippery slope arguments. Like, what's this? We do something for a good reason and the next day we do something for a bad reason? Where's the line? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh it's pretty it's conservative um, Star Trek. It's pretty uncomfortable. Why it feels weird. The movie trots that shit out, and I think it's supposed to feel like a moment when like Picard has fully united with the audience, right? It's supposed to be a moment when like because that fiery diatribe should come late in the movie when uh, you're you are one to one with your hero. Uh, it is not for most of the audience. Most of the audience will be like, yeah, it feels like these people, these these random settlers are hogging this resource, and we can find them a similar planet, and also possibly give them, also possibly give them a version of this immortality, maybe. Yeah, like, I we can still probably give this. You'll to them. still be fine. And then they make it a revenge plot. Like, they just keep making yeah. the movie dumber as they go, right? Like, so it's like, okay, it's kind of interesting. Like, would you relocate a, a, somebody from their land if it meant that everyone could benefit, right? Like, you're doing that thing that, that like, grade school teachers do. Like, uh, certain people can be very... Would you rather have certain people be very, very happy or everybody be this amount of happy um which yeah i do think like if my but if the thing is like do i have to move everyone in bozeman montana for the cure for cancer sorry bozeman but like they no ethical concerns but they 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 essentially take it from like what is a very basic ethical argument and then they make it dumber as the movie goes on like they're like oh but they've actually been here for 300 years oh actually they live forever so like most of them just have like you know eight-year-old kids like there's not even like general there's not even more than uh two generations here uh actually like you know since this has all happened in 300 years we can find them like a pretty sick home oh uh oh actually their villains are um villain villains it's their like they, kids <laughs> yeah the they kids just keep making the, the movie dumber and dumber that plot twist made me so angry it doesn't even register as a plot twist to me because like there is so much of like a it's like a mystery solved with a oh it doesn't change like it literally changes nothing like it they're they're acting like it's the fucking chinatown thing like there's all these hints to it towards it and then it's like these are your kids oh who cares? You're the people that left? We recognize you. Come back with us. It's like, oh, okay, well, I guess I guess none of that matters. Uh, you mentioned the, like, the, the marriage... Hold on, you mentioned dumber. the marriage stuff. I also think that's why it's conservative Star Trek, because there's a line when Picard... Uh, is around that, uh, is, you know, has a crush on... Uh, what's that? What's that character's name? Sorry. Might as well get it right. 
uh, 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 Star Trek podcast, getting something right? What do you What do you mean? Uh, is that important? She was also the wife to uh, Alfred Molina in Spider Man Two. Um, she Boogie so uh, what? She's, Boogie Nights. <laughs> She's cowering uh, <laughs> in the kitchen the whole time. So uh, so her name is uh, Ani. I think fuck Ani like Ani Menchi. No, it's A N I J. So it might be like An G. But anyways, it's the. Baku woman that Picard has a crush on, and it, she's like 300. Sorry, she's 350 years old. And this is why I think this is such a conservative Star Trek movie. It's because he's like, How is it? And all that time, you've never married. Like the idea that if you're a single woman of a certain age, in this case 350, you've never married because to ma- like what anything else would be untowards. Like I don't know, dude. Maybe she has been married. She's 350 years or old. She's ba- like or this, she's banged everyone in this like 80 person town that's eligible. Like, like just that idea of like if now like, she has to sit around and wait for people's kids to grow up for there to be more of a dating population. If I met someone that was 30 and single, I wouldn't assume that they had never been married. Like, he meets someone that's 350 and assumes that uh, not only has she never been married, but that this must mean that he must be pretty special. <laughs> like, yeah, it, that's it, a con- that's um, conservative Star Trek, right? Yeah, like it, it's, um, it's weirdly leaning into, like, a, a spinster stereotype. Yeah. That, like, she and just that, needed like, to find the right man. Our hero couldn't be attracted to a used-up woman. So <laughs> this, is, this reminds me of how all of a sudden in like seventh grade, I, I my my grade school class from first to eighth grade, you know, it fluctuated a little bit, but it was between thirty-two and thirty-five kids. Which reminds me of how in between sixth and eighth grade, pretty much everyone started dating like the public school or the nearby private school like uh, uh, like <laughs> just anybody anybody that wasn't us 30 kids because you're just sick of looking at each other and you had da- and if you were dating and interested you had dated the only people you were interested in the class uh yeah uh i i think that is i mean yeah they, they probably fucked around i mean it's only 200 people um some of them our child, which is why Data has a literal boyfriend, in which case I mean a boy who is his friend. Um, <laughs> no uh, can we talk about how flot- how Data's ass is apparently a giant balloon that, f- that gives him a flotation device? Can we talk about... Sure. Yeah, he needs a flotation... Which is, again, one of the terrible jokes. I can be used... Like, he's... He understands enough of, like, 20th century airplane... Uh, announcements to like make a pun out of it when he can blow up like a flotation device and turn into a boat. Great, great special effects work. Yeah, he's like, we, uh, he's like, uh, can uh, we talk about that? Brett Spiner has been wanting to, had wanted to get killed off in the last movie and then wanted to get killed off in this movie and they wouldn't kill him off mainly because he was like, kill me I very funny, uh, funny impulse for data though. <laughs> uh, well, Brett Spiner wanted to because he's like, hey. I am an ageless robot who is aging. I look like shit. Stop. He has so much makeup caked on in this. Yeah, this does not this does not make the HD transfer very well, but th- that was his point. Like, hey, like 
if you keep doing this, it just makes me not look like I am, and I want to preserve the integrity of Data's character. Data flew a little too close to the sun every movie, so he just um, gets it a little melted. <laughs> they refuse to kill him. They will correct that mistake in the next um, good for good for Data. Data finally gets don't, to die. Don't worry, they they leave a they leave a way to to keep him around. Well, we'll get. I didn't mind ruining Star Can't Trek Nemesis stuff because who a gives a body? Shit? Like the idea that you're going to be affected by Data's death in the next movie is zero percent. So who fucking gives a shit? Can't about they look Data it? into a new body? Peter, what do you think I'm getting at by when I say they leave the door open for him to not be dead? <laughs> They also did this interchangeable uh, Vulcan thing uh, in the like early movies where they're like, no, like this person's gonna be a regular part of the cast. And the next movie, they're like, oh no, she's not here, but there's a new person that looks similar to her. Yeah, so I I actually think the only funny joke in this movie, which I do like quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to think. Like I'm literally going. There's so many jokes that just make you go oh brother so i'm trying to see if i missed one in my i really notes. hate the jock to law acne jokes that that uh fucking um <laughs> no which one's name like um, the data's rehearsing a play stuff and then who's and michael Dorn's character down? again sorry wharf wharf there's all these jokes about wharf going through jock to law and he has acne oh yeah that that all those jokes were all. Oh yeah, because the planet's making them younger for some reason. Even though the whole thing about the immortality on the planet is that, um, <laughs> once you it doesn't the do age that. Of consent, you pause. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, we get you right to the age of consent. Then you're there, baby. God. Um. Uh. No, the funniest line is that there is a part where there's like this. I mean, honestly, who cares? At the end, they get they're on they're on the back or the uh, Soren ship, and then they're they're off it, and eventually, um, Riker because Riker and Jordy are like they uh, eventually d- d- incapacitate the enemy ship, and they go they they go on the um, they call Worf, who's over there as a prisoner, and Worf hails them and goes. Uh, the Sorna would like to uh, meet the terms of the uh, would like to offer terms for surrender and uh, Riker goes why is that Worf like surprising because they had the upper hand moments ago why is everyone why is Worf the prisoner being surrounded by 30 people and he's he's calling them uh, to to dictate surrender he goes probably because we have about two minutes of air left (laughs) Um, which is a very funny joke um, and it's, it's delivered, you know, Michael Dorn's great at that. Like those understated lines where Brett Spiner, who they give shitty lines, who's like, I'm going to eat all of this. <laughs> like, I'm going to be like a robot eat machine. Who's like going to put so much extra stuff on it. Because in my defense, I'm a robot trying to mimic human <laughs> speech. Yeah, I... I'm going to chew up all of this, I think. <laughs> Does he shit out little, like, owl pellets? Just, like, fr- just dried up versions of the food that came in? We'll never know. Never. Never. Maybe Star Trek Apparently Picard Apparently his ass blows it. up into a balloon, but we don't know anything else about what comes out of his ass. He turns into a boat. Like, it's so... I don't know. This movie's bad, Peter. I guess... Uh, here I'm going to go to my final thoughts, just because I want it to be done. Um, and then you can say whatever you want for your final thoughts. I think, like, the way that you know this movie is going to be bad, it tells you right out the gate. Every 
fucking Star Trek movie opens with a bombastic score, sometimes by Jerry Goldsmith, sometimes by people imitating or using themes that Jerry Goldsmith created. And it has, like, big extravagance for the credits, right? Like, this is fucking William Shatner on the big screen. It'll have, like, you know, uh, stars and, and like, Superman-style credits coming at you or, like, a space expanse and, like, these huge opening um, moments and scores and, like, things dissolving or a wine bottle floating in space or, like, there could be a ship. And, like, it starts off the movie... And this idea that, fuck, I am... I'm not just seeing, like, a movie on the big screen. I'm seeing a Star Trek movie on the big screen, which was, to Star Trek fans, special, right? Like, that that was... That is something, like, that the bombast of the credits that always continued in these big, like, William Shatner or Patrick Stewart or whoever else was in the cast. Like, we're going to we're gonna spend time on each of the cast name like we did in the opening credits of the TV shows and we're going to have the biggest fucking music because that's kind of what we did on the TV show but now you're seeing it on the big screen. It was important. When Star Trek came on the big screen in the first place, it was, like, after years of fans fucking doing everything they could to see these people again and then they were there and and then every few years when you got another adventure they let you know right off the bat that there was bombast behind it and it was important and it felt important and they they repeated that with star trek uh, generations and first contact just these credits that are coming at you and you're like seeing it like you're seeing the fucking like encore of the fucking biggest tv show of all time like or something like that right And then all of a sudden, Star Trek Insurrection starts with subdued credits over a slow piano scene and a Ren Faire scene. And it makes no goddamn sense. Like, it is – it's like Jonathan Franks and Marina Citrus and Michael Dorn and there's three of them in one credit block and they're in the right-hand corner in white credits and there's like a – a light piano song playing and there's people playing fucking ultimate frisbee in fucking Renaissance gear in a wheat field or something and you're like okay this is like are they gonna end up being robot like what this is the star trek movie and i think the like that opening tone matches the movie that you get like i i think i i i'm sure they weren't because the whole point is the credits end that all of a sudden there's laser fire and it's supposed to be surprising But I think that perfectly encapsulates everything wrong with this movie. It was the first Star Trek movie that – that it's not the first Star Trek movie that wasn't good. There there were a couple of those and obviously Star Trek fans could debate or not. But it was the first Star Trek movie that didn't seem to – that didn't seem to expect people to walk into the theater with a sense of awe. Like, this is the first Star Trek movie where I truly believe they're like, well, the last one was successful. It's two years later. Let's make another Star Trek movie. And uh, it it the movie starts out on that tone. No one involved in this movie seems to think it is a special thing that we are seeing a Star Trek movie on the big screen. And that seeps into every corner of this movie. It seeps into all the different ideas they had to make this uh, a Star Trek movie worth seeing. And they, like, dulled it and broke it and and dumbed it and everything else to make it just boring and inoffensive and just, just a waste of time. Like, I don't go – like, I – 
say what you want about like a Final Frontier, Peter, as we have, like that's a movie that swung for the fences. Spock meets his brother. They fucking go meet God in the center of the universe. Like <laughs> that's a that's something that's that fails in a lot of ways. But it's trying to do something that makes people go, holy shit, how lucky are you to be seeing a Star Trek movie? And this movie just becomes a procedural. Like, we're going to make a shitty television episode. And um, and that's what everyone got. A movie that people went, okay. I mean, that would have been a bad episode. Kind of weird. I had to go see that in theaters. <laughs> um, gets everything wrong. And then they course correct by instead of uh, like again this was a course correction to success which made no sense they course correct that where we're going to go from here by like what if we say fuck star trek and make car chases i don't know and like you understand why a franchise that had a, a, a remarkable resurgence in the 80s and 90s with some of the best content that they produced from movies to television to uh, just a renewed fandom just totally started whiffing on every level because it became a product that they had to deliver on as opposed to something that was expected to entice and inspire awe in the audience that was there to see it. I think that's a good I think that's a good way of putting it. It's essentially um, a compromise of, of cowardice, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a film that they said they didn't look at themselves and say, you know, what can we what can we do with this franchise that we haven't done yet, or what can we do to remind people why they came here? Um, instead, they said, what are other successful movies doing? Um, oh, they're or keeping what, it or light. what can we get in production in two years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were keeping it light. They were keeping it modest, right? And, and, and it feels like an enormously cowardly, ill thought of movie that was like positioned for, um, for all quadrants and yet no quadrants because <laughs> it's. It, I think it's a. I think it's like a massive misunderstanding. It was it was an act of cowardice, but also like naivety. So yeah. like they they both didn't swing for the fences, but they also didn't understand that Star Trek is never that good at action sequences. <laughs> so like if this was just like one long, you know, if this was if ins- by the way, what the fuck is the insurrection? Well, they quit Starfleet. Okay. I mean, this is also a product of this movie had like ten names, and they this like settled on one. It like, reminds me of video games where they're like, the, the, when the title is just like two vague, semi-religious sounding words, where yeah. it's like, uh, confession, redemption, <laughs> like vampire masquerade to the bloodline. Oh. <laughs> Like, remember in the mid-2000s when every shooter had a subtitle, like, Redemption or, you know, Origins? Gears of War, Judgment. Oh, man. This is where the judgment happens. No, it means it's not a numbered sequel. It's garbage. We (laughs) shit it out in between stuff. Uh, But this is something that... um, This is something that, that, that it feels also like an act of naivety because... They didn't understand the limitations of what their staff was capable of, where they were like, no, 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 we're not going to bring in, like, new blood, new blood, but we are going to attempt to make 
you know, big action sequences and big shootouts. And you're like, well, was the show ever about big shootouts? That doesn't feel like something Star Trek was really about. I'm like, no, but um, there's some drones and they're going to shoot some drones. And like, that is like, it's this is a movie I will never watch again. Like, this, Unless, yeah, th- this, this was definitely like me watching this was like, oh. Unless, like, uh, I, you and I want to have a show where you and I become the Star Trek nerds and uh, 10 years from now and it's us uh, making your children watch these movies with. Well, I, I, you know, Maya watched. Maya watched uh, that would be yeah, so be cool, wouldn't it? We'd well, make... but Maya and I watched First Contact, and like I said, she didn't understand a lot of it. I think it was essentially the first Star Trek thing that she sat through my. Uh, at the time of recording, a six-year-old daughter. Um, and I didn't even, like, even though Insurrection is actually PG, where um, First Contact was PG-13, I knew that there would not be a hook to drag her into this at any level. And as I rewatched it, I was like, oh, yeah. This is actually, this is this this is probably weird. This is the only one of these movies I never bought on DVD. Um because I didn't like the reason I watched Star Trek Nemesis on DVD, which we'll talk about next week. It was the first Star Trek movie that I skipped in theaters, which was big for me. But I was kind of like just burnt out on Voyager was bad. I didn't like Enterprise. Um, and then this movie came out, which got terrible reviews that I didn't see in theaters and then eventually caught up with it by buying the DVD. But I skipped over the Insurrection DVD. So the only reason I, wa- I, I now own it is because I bought the the Blu-ray four pack to rewatch these was like 15 bucks. So um, I hadn't seen this one. Um, I saw this twice in theaters, which was more just a like uh, it was a, it was a episode one thing a little bit for me. I was thinking like, episode one thing where you're like that wasn't bad, right? And then you you go back and you're like, okay, yeah. And I probably watched it at some point. Like I I know I owned it on VHS when it came out before DVDs were a thing, and just like a well, I got to keep complete my Star Trek collection. Uh, so I probably watched it at that point. But I definitely like I have definitely not seen this movie since the year 2000. Like it was the last century I watched it. And uh, yeah, I'll never watch it. Like I I can't imagine a scenario unless for, we weirdly cover it on We Love to Watch or I get called onto a guest podcast where I talk about this movie, I cannot imagine a scenario where I watch this movie again. I, I actually... Like the idea of making your children, when they're, like, in their teenage years, uh, go through <laughs> these movies in the same order we went through, but in, yeah, obviously, you know, 10, 12 years. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, because we're gonna get... So, next week, we're gonna be doing Star Trek Nemesis, or next episode, I should say. I keep saying next week, but as far as I know, it'll be 2023 when you hear these. Um... They'll um we'll be doing that with paired with two episodes, uh The Enemy from Star Trek The Next Generation and Balance of Terror from the original series, because we've never this is like the first Romulan movie, and we really haven't done much Romulan stuff besides some some Sela stuff in the uh in the redemption arc that we did. So I think it makes sense to to go back a little bit and introduce the Romulans. They they become a bigger part, as you know, Peter, in uh, in the two thousand nine Star Trek. So we're gonna do we're gonna do a two for both very good episodes too. Um, 
But I do think, like, I think people think that Star Trek Nemesis is a worse movie. But I'll be honest, like, I, I saw Star Trek Nemesis once. I bought the DVD. I watched it. I didn't like it. Uh, I never thought about it again. Never watched it again. And haven't rewatched it yet for our episode. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to revisit it just because it's the – it is definitely the Star Trek movie that I've seen the least. I've even seen Into Darkness twice. Um, but uh, I hate this movie, at least – like my my ire as a as a Star Trek fan is firmly planted on this movie because even though Nemesis is bad and does a bunch of stuff that you're gonna you're gonna find confounding because not only is it a bad Star Trek movie it's done by someone who doesn't understand Star Trek so you're gonna be like oh cool uh car chase dune buggy scene with Picard laughing his ass off while Data fires or whoever fires a rifle out the back of the jeep odd like you're you're going to be confounded by it and it is rightly confounding and it rightly kind of killed the the next generation movie series but confounding would be a feeling it's yeah it's a feeling (laughs) but also like the reason that they made the reason that they made that movie the reason they hired Stuart baird and decided like what we need is someone who fucking hates star trek to make a star trek or whatever else they decided um and hates the cast (laughs) uh to make a star trek movie that was done because of how poorly Insurrection was received. So this, to me, like as a Star Trek fan, is the the fulcrum point that starts making Star Trek bad, right? Like you have this movie that sucks. I loved First Contact when this movie came out. You have uh, Deep Space Nine, which is finishing its last season, which is great. But then that's over. You have Voyager, which is middling. Voyager ends and then uh, before Nemesis comes out, you have Enterprise, which feels as perfunctory as this movie. Well, our last epi- our last series ended. I guess time to make a new one with no thought, like borrowing all the worst, most generic episodes or uh, concepts and characters from other Star Treks to almost do like a, a mega blocks uh, f- facsimile of a Star Trek series. Uh, and it just like I do feel like this movie is like the the fulcrum that like my disinterest in Star Trek starts after uh, a pretty hardcore obsession. So uh, Star Trek Nemesis may be worse, maybe slightly better, maybe equally bad. We'll find out next time we record. But my my hate is it's firmly directed at this movie, Peter. Um, and thankfully, the, the the hate turns to joy again uh, in in two thousand nine, and then turns to anger again in whenever two thousand twelve or eleven, whenever into darkness, and then turns to joy again when Beyond comes out. So, uh, I and I like Star Trek Discovery too. So, like I, but I this is like this is the end of my this this phase of my love affair with Star Trek. So from that perspective, it's a little sad too. Like. This is where I was like, oh, shit. Is this bad? I hate this. <laughs> Why are they doing this? But the nice thing is that you didn't actually, though at the time it probably felt like it, you didn't really have to wait that long for good Trek again. Yeah, I mean, 11 years. Yeah, it's not that bad. Yeah. I mean, at that point, I'd lived 15. So, yeah, just basically an entire lifetime <laughs> for me 
slightly less than my entire lifetime i had to wait um yeah so uh, on that depressing note um but yes so i'm excited for next time and only are you excited in the way that you're like you know when you're you're in a bad situation and you're like oh shit i get to get over that bad situation very soon yeah because um, after that, I'm excited to go back through the the J.J. Abrams ones, um, and then. Um, well, actually, if you read my schedule, after that, we're going into a uh, a next generation arc for a little bit. Yes, yes, we're gonna. Which I, gonna which is actually one of the things I'm most excited I requested. about. Yeah. yeah. And then the movies after that, like I'm expecting the like two out of three. Which I have not loved the recent Star Trek movies we've been watching. So, yeah. Uh, so worth. Uh, so actually, why don't we take just a second? If you want to know where we're going, we do have it somewhat sketched out until we potentially blow up this podcast and uh, incorporate more sci-fi stuff into it. We like the idea of continuing. This is a concept, but here's where we currently have for like because uh, now that we're kind of in the sights of the finale. We see about eight episodes left. So it's going to be Star Trek Nemesis. Then Aaron's Star Trek Next Generation favorites, um, which are some of my favorite episodes of the series that we never – I specifically didn't intro with those. But I want to now that you've kind of experienced more of a breath to go to some of my all-time favorite episodes. We're going to do uh, the Q arc which I think is going to be important. Um, that may be moved around with old friends, which uh, may make a little bit of sense to those listening. It probably doesn't to Peter yet. Then we're going to do Star Trek 2009 and the accompanying episodes. We're going to do Into Darkness. We're going to do the worst Trek episodes that I can find at Peter's request. I, uh, I need it. And then a Peter's Picks episode, which is just he's going to find episodes that he wants to cover. Um and then and then do whatever there and then we're going to end with uh star trek beyond and then from there that's when i think things could potentially get um somewhat interesting where we we may touch on some Deep space nine some voyager additionally uh we, we we are likely going to go maybe do like some Galaxy Quest or some Planet of the Vampires or other Star Trek inspired type sci-fi stuff. So our goal is to keep the show going. We still have a lot of Trek, Trek uh, ahead of you episode wise, but we are recognizing too that we're in the last four movies. Um, but uh, I think we still I, I think we got a good seven episodes left of this particular series and then I'm excited to where it can metastasize too. So uh and I really do believe, even though Into Darkness is going to be a little bit of a slog, it's going to be a slog in between some really fun stuff. And uh, I think this is actually the worst stretch where we have to do Insurrection followed by Nemesis. Thankfully, I do think uh, you're going to enjoy the two Trek episodes, one original series, one another uh, stellar third season entry. Uh, so, yeah. He once was a Romulan. Now he will be gone. Yeah, exactly. Did and I, baby shaved a little bit too early. Uh, you're going to see a baby shave Tom Hardy pretending to be Patrick Stewart, which at the very least, I think you can agree, Peter, you have not seen before. Uh, yeah, I can agree. I can agree that I have not seen that before. Um, yes, so I'm, I, I am excited about what's coming next. Thank you, Aaron, for whatever this is. <laughs>
Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) 